Hey everyone, Shad here. Uh, thanks for tuning in to the Snakebite podcast number 17. Uh, we are brought to you with the help of digbmx.com. Uh, Dig's been holding it down since the early 90s with original content. So if you're looking for some awesome photos, videos, or articles, hit up digbmx.com and check them out. It's pretty darn awesome. Uh, today's podcast is with the one and only Evan Krakow. Uh, you might know him from being maybe like a child protege on Haro back in the late 80s to his homeless bike days in the early 90s or even, you know, kind of being a mini ramp assassin on standard there in the 90s. Um, I was really looking forward to sitting down with Evan and chatting it up since we both are like crazy BMX nerds. So I hope you guys really enjoy this podcast. Here we go. Yeah, let's get into this. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to get into. You've, you've been riding BMX for a long time. What, since like 84? 81. 81? Yeah. How old were you in 81? Because you're not very Seven. much old. Yeah, I was going to say, you're not very much older than me. Uh, did, you, and you, did you start, you, did your dad, how, well, you started racing. How'd you, how'd your, how'd you get into racing? All right. The easiest, the easiest way to say how I got into BMX was, um, I was oh, like every other kid that was that was in our age demographic, where you know I looked up, or every other boy that was in our age demographic that that looked up to Evil Knievel and and things like that. And uh, first bike, of course, was an Evil Knievel bike, and I wanted to you know imitate Evil Knievel. So my parents lived in this cul-de-sac, and there was this, their driveway was downhill, so you'd haul ass down the hill, turn left in the cul-de-sac, and, like, I would do laps, but there was this really awesome curb cut that was two houses down, and on a good day, I mean, I was two and a half years old, which is kind of funny, but um, I could probably jump eight or nine feet distance-wise, and... I remember I just watched Wild World of Sports and Evil tried to jump something. I don't remember what, but um, there was a blue 1977 Ford Thunderbird sitting right next to the curb cut. And I'm, my idiotic two-year-old brain, I'm like, okay, let's screw it. I think I can do this. So I just wanted to see if I could jump distance-wise the length of the Ford Thunderbird. And... End up in a crazy dead sailor, land front wheel, smack my head against the ground, knocked out cold. Um, I came to, I don't know how many, how much later, uh, but we were on the way to the hospital. And um, that night they did, I believe, an MRI and uh, some x-rays on me. And there was a little speck on... Um, on the x-ray and the uh, on-call doctor was like no it's just you know the film film there's this little spot whatever my dad's like no we need a second opinion because my mom as well as my aunt both were diagnosed with brain tumors and um so doctor's like no it's just it's the x-ray screwed up so we went through 
my parents were, no, we're going to get a second opinion. And I think it was like a month out, month and a half out till I could get in to get the second opinion. And, uh, I was at school, I was in a daycare and me and my buddy were playing on the tire swing and somehow, lo and behold, I fell off, got knocked out again. And my mom picked me up, took me, took me to the emergency room immediately and they called in another specialist and fortunately this was still in business hours so my parents you know they were able to actually do an MRI right then um they pulled my files everything since it was the same hospital and they ran through everything and it came back a couple days later where it was yeah there was um some sort of growth there um basically and then you know um they ended up cutting it out. I want to say about a couple months after that. So it was like, in your brain. Yeah, it was. It was right next to my brain, top left side. Um, they drilled it. They pulled it out. It was benign, and uh, put a plastic plug in my head. So basically, yeah, I've got this quarter-sized hole in my in my skull with that's filled in, and um, so then, you know, I'm still the kid that, you know, wants to be evil can evil and whatnot. My parents took me to SA Slope Skate Park, which was an old school concrete, no coping bold snake run park with a full pipe and such. In San Antonio? In San Antonio. Okay. And that ended up closing in seventy nine, I think. Um it was not very far from my house. And they bought me a Norcon skateboard helmet just to wear when I rode my bike around the neighborhood. And, of course, you know, I was the the nerd kid because I was having to wear a helmet. And, and no one wore helmets. No one yeah, wore Yeah, no one wore, wore helmets back and, then. And I truly got heckled for it. And I was, I remember being super bummed because my parents were like, no, you have to wear it. Um, which, you know, I'm very grateful that, you know, they made sure of that. I, you know, they're like, look, those kids are idiots. Don't, yeah. don't, don't take it to heart. And so, you know, eventually I kind of got over it. Um, but... All at the same time, my dad's best friend was Kent Howerton, who at the time was one of, you know, the top probably two or three supercross and motocross racers in the world. Yeah. And he, you know, without a doubt was probably one of the huge influence on me. And, uh, you know, he would occasionally bring me and my parents to, to races. Um, I know what was I, four or five, first time he, he got me and my parents to go out to, uh, to Anaheim for the, um, Supercross finals. And then I want to say it was 80, 79 or 80, he won a championship. And so he, you know, they gave money, you know, they got a big bonus for the series, but at the same time he won a truck and he flew me and my parents out, and the deal was, was, hey, we'll, you know, drive the truck back for you. And so, you know, my parents decided to make it into a vacation, and, you know, we went and did Disneyland and all of that stuff. And he, uh, my dad took me to a bike shop, and I remember seeing a blue 16-inch DG. Oh, wow. yellow tufts, everything. Was and it blue with the yellow graphics? Yeah, it was so sick. And I remember seeing it. I was so stoked. And, you know, at the time, 
we were driving like I think we were you know just driving around we're still there for like another day or two in LA and my dad's like well you know maybe we'll come back and get it and I was just so psyched on it and then that night the the phone at the hotel rang and Kent had at the time was sponsored by Suzuki and he um, he told my dad he was like look here's the address tomorrow go to this address there is a prototype RM60 dirt bike it's for Evan no strings attached he doesn't have to race they don't have a kid small enough right now to ride it and you my dad helped him with his with his private track and his actual race tracks and such that he had in San Antonio and so he's like and I can just see him riding it and I'll be able to tell if there's issues with it hey you know he'll be able to say this is this or whatever and you know immediately I'm stoked because it's like one I'm gonna get to ride Kent's track and you know I'm this little like five-year-old kid but at the same time I'm like then I get to ride dirt bikes with my dad too because up until that point I would just like sit on the tank and hold the hand like crossbar and my dad would like it was basically like I was sitting on my dad's lap we go ride around the track and stuff and this was like kind of like okay this is a big jump of freedom for me and my mom was like hell no not happening you're not getting it and I cried and I begged and my dad was like come on just let him have it my mom was like no you're not getting a dirt bike just not happening and um, needless to say, that was the first of many battles I would lose with my mom. And I uh, didn't end up getting the dirt bike. Um, so we came back and um, there was a guy, Danny Storbeck, who ended Ricky Johnson's racing career by landing on him. And... Uh, then he ended up, you know, then Ricky ended up racing trucks, but I, um, he, one of his family members raced two or something like that, I don't remember, and he, uh, they had an MR50, a 1974 Honda MR50, and he did some work, I mean, you know, by this time it's what, 80, 81, somewhere in there maybe, and, um, so my dad didn't tell my mom. And he's like, look, this is the deal. You find a way to come up with the money to buy the bike from him. Your grandparents and I will split the cost of whatever we need to get for it to make it, you know, function. So, needless to say, my grandparents, you know, summer, so I've stayed at my grandparents. So, I just went up, along, up and down the highway with my grandparents. I was picking up cans and stuff like that. Saved a bunch of money. I think it was like 50 bucks is what the dude wanted for it. Saved up the money. Bought the dirt bike. At the time, my grandfather wasn't retired, so he stripped the paint off the frame. He repainted everything. Completely redid the whole bike. Got it running. And my parents had a huge backyard, and so we... Um, my dad decided it was time to break the news to my mom. And so we showed up at the house. And my mom was pretty pissed. Um, she saw the dirt bike, wasn't very happy. And my dad's like, look, he's not going to go ride it by himself. And the back, their backyard was huge. And so the way that the frames were back then, the frame went over the back fender. So my dad could basically 
use it as a handle, like how the, you know, the Haro push bike seats are and all that, where you just hold it like a handle. So he'd walk around the yard with me while I, um, um, while I, uh, was learning how to ride it. And, you know, I think it was probably two days later and I was just ripping around my parents' backyard. Um, then I really, the fire was lit. I wanted to race dirt bikes, but because of the brain injury, you know, the, the tumor and all of that, my parents were like, no, you, you can't do it. And so my, my dad was talking to Ken about it and he's like, look, he really wants to do it. I don't know how it can fill that void. So what they did is he was like, take him a BMX track. And it's like, what the hell is that? It's like bicycle motocross. It's basically kids racing around a track on a bicycle. And they took me out there and I watched it. Um, I think I went to a couple practices and then my dad bought me a 1981 Diamondback Mini and it's chrome and it had all blue parts on it. It had like blue Arias and blue Suzu hubs and maxi cross cranks. It was awesome. And I started racing in the fall of 81 and, uh, it was basically a way so I could kind of get what I wanted, but the danger level wasn't as high as motocross. Yeah. So that's basically how I got into BMX as a whole. Um, because I couldn't race motocross. And so even back then, you know, I wore Bell motocross helmets. I wore Simpson motocross helmets, um, just to protect my head. Um, and you know, that's probably why I don't, I didn't have a lot of concussions or a lot of, you know, uh, head injuries was because I did fall. I did have, you know, the best helmet money could buy at the time. So that was basically the happy medium. I got to race. It just wasn't dirt bikes. So, and then kind of, you know, we were out in the garage and I noticed you pulled out your little, uh, you have like a little kind of miniature black light freestyle frame. Yeah. Um, looks like what's that? 84 or something. It was like 83, 84. Um, really early freestyle bike. Yeah, it was, what kind of pulled you, did you just want to start riding freestyle? Did you see that? What kind of pulled you that way? Um, it, it, I think there's a lot of things. One, I think I was kind of getting burnt out on, on racing. Um, I think the, the spark was just kind of fading. I think I was like nine years old. Um, some of the, the, the top kids that, you know, I was racing against in Texas were kind of fading out. They were kind of over it, um, or getting into football or soccer or whatever. Um, and, and the tracks were kind of just evolving, you know, to go faster, stay low. There weren't 20 foot doubles and, and stuff like some of the tracks were when I first started. And, uh, my best friend at the time, DJ, he had a Haro Freestyler and I saw it and I mean, I knew who Bob Haro was because he did you know, graphics for like JT and stuff and, like well, that. Well, he had his number plates out by then too, right? Yeah, oh yeah, he had number plates, you know, he had visors and, you know, the, the freestyler frames that came out and my friend had one. And 
at the time, you know, BMX was very uniform. You had, like, Redline, which was red and black. GT was blue and gold. Robinson was red and blue. Kind of just like motocross. Yeah. It was, there was no, there was, like, a color palette of, like, six colors. Yamaha was yellow and black, you know. Kawasaki was green and blue. It was literally, like, six colors, and that was it. And, you know, with, with motocross, and this, the same thing was kind of like with, with BMX. Well, I always thought it was cool because Haro's had green and blue decals. And Bob had green brake cables, which, you know, here in the middle of Texas, you know, I'd never seen that. And green was my favorite color. So I thought it was even cooler. I was like, dude, you know, here's this bike. You can do tricks on it. And it, it was one of those things where, you know, my my best friend had one. He had a quarter pipe. we go jump and ride ditches. And I think I was having a lot of fun doing that as well. So I'm looking at the bike and I'm like, dude, I want one of those. But at the time, I was still really small. I don't think I really hit a growth spurt. I was still pretty small up until I was probably like 12 maybe. And then around 13, I started growing. Yeah. And so the thing was, I was so small that it was too big for me. And black lights were known as small frame sets for little kids. And so at the time I was racing for, I was like co-sponsored by Blacklight. And my dad borrowed my friend's bike took it over to Gus, who was welding the frames up, and said, look, can you make him a bike like this, but the same specs as his race bike? And he was like, yeah, I don't see why not. And so he basically made it. And, you know, uh, my dad, I don't, I don't think any of us really thought that it would go to the level that it did. It was just one of those things where I had it to go right around, up ditches and, you know, do curb windows and, you know, just regular kid stuff. And then it was like, okay, you know, I'm actually kind of learning stuff. I'm actually getting kind of good. This is somewhere where I want to go. Then, um, I think my friend's parents were moving and they asked my dad, they're like, well, Hey, Evan loves a quarter pipe. Can he have it? Dad was like, I don't know. He talked to my mom, and mom's like, yeah, whatever. You know, that was a way for them to monitor where I was. You know, they didn't have to worry about me going out and worrying about me getting hit by a car or whatever. So it was eight feet wide, and my dad decided, all right, well, let's pour a concrete slab in the backyard, and we'll set the quarter pipe up there. And the original plan was quarter pipe on one end, wedge ramp on the other. But 50 feet, of, you know, total with a quarter pipe and a wedge ramp, you've got about 30 feet of flat. And yeah. you're not you're going to be able to maybe go two feet pedaling. So um, eventually that evolved into a six-foot half pipe. Um, and that was, you know, it just slowly started evolving into that. Um, I think up until I was... Christmas of 84, I ended up getting a Haro Master, uh, a second gen Haro Master. And was that kind of big for you back then? It was big, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, at the time, there weren't a lot of companies making anything small. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I remember my first 
I think riding, you know, just like my stepbrother's GT Performer, uh, I remember I'd be so frustrated because I couldn't bunny hop up curbs, but I could do frame stands, I could do, you know, almost do fire hydrants and stuff, and I was like, what's wrong with me? And now in hindsight, looking back, the bike was just really big and I was tiny, and I could still do some flatland tricks, but I just didn't, I wasn't big enough to bunny hop up curbs. Exactly. And, and that was the thing, that was the way it was. Because back then, you know, at the time, I think, around that time, the reason that I ended up getting the Master was because I was outgrowing the blacklight. Yeah. And they were like, you know, you can't ride that thing. It's just too little. So I ended up getting a complete bike. Um, I think my parents gave me some parts for Christmas. My grandparents gave me the other parts. And at the time, the, the bike shop here in San Antonio, Action Bikes, um, Jim, the owner, gave me some parts for the bikes as well. As, as well. And he... Um, and so... Looking back on it now, I went from a mini race bike, technically, with, you know, I had Z-rims, front brakes. That bike, that Blacklight Freestyle bike's definitely a mini. Yeah, it's definitely a mini, for sure. You know, and I had, like, junior um, Powerlight bars, so they were probably, like, five-inch rides or something. Yeah. And that's what I ran on. I had a forklifter stem and all, you know, it was... I mean, I remember the setup. You know, I had Z rims, I had Comp STs, um, at a DK. Or no, I had a forklifter stem, and it had like five inch rise, whatever the the power light bars were. I know that, and you know, it was small. Um, then I got the Master, and it was full size freestyle bike that had a top load DK stem on it, and I got Mike Buff. Hutch ladder bars, and I, you know, it's totally two ends of the spectrum. You're going from this little bike to this bike that's, you know, I wouldn't run those bars now because they were like nine inch rise back then. And eventually, you know, I ended up having the power light bars put on that bike, so it worked out. Um, and I, I at that point, um, I kind of rode eighty. 85 a lot, um, just riding quarter pipes in my backyard, jumping ditches and stuff, and it's having more and more fun. Well, did you have a little crew you were starting to ride with, or? No, I was really riding by myself. Okay. Um, you know, I would still go to the track on occasion, but, um, the only person I really rode with was my friend Mark, and he would ride on occasion, but he was still racing, so his parents really didn't want him riding quarter pipes because he was going to risk getting hurt. So, I was kind of driving a lot by myself, and um, I want to say it was February of 86, there was, it was early February of 86, there was a local AFA contest at, uh, in Austin at the Coliseum where, you know, they had Master Series contests and all of that stuff, and my parents... I decided, you know, hey, let's go up and watch it. See what you think of it. And then we'll, we'll go from there and see what this kind of, if this is the route you want to go. And at the time, you know, the local dude was, was Jack Smith, who everyone, you know, oh, he's been to Pipeline. Oh, you know. Oh, we know the, Jack Smith. Oh, yeah. We all know Jack Smith. But, you know... In how old you know, was, how Jack Smith's what like four 
years older than you? He's like six years older than me. So he was in his teens by then. Oh yeah, he was in his teens. I mean, I was I was twelve, and you know he was like considered like the top dude in San Antonio, and I think my dad knew of him or had met him. I'm I'm not really sure, and so they took me and my friend DJ up to the contest. We watched it. Eddie and Martin did a demo intermission between Flatline and Ramps. And there was these crazy disco lights. So, like, when Eddie would be pedaling toward the quarter pipe, the whole building was black. But they would have, like, these random neon lights. And then when Eddie would pedal the quarter pipe, the light would, like, follow him. And there was a spotlight. And then it'd be on the quarter pipe. It'd be, like, some other colored light. It was the most bizarre thing. It was almost like a horrible, the horrible dancing at a rad brought to real life. Um, and we went to that event and my, I think my parents saw that there was something there where, you know, they saw their kid going, okay, this is what I want to do. And my dad went and talked to Jack, got his phone number, found out he lived like a couple miles away from my, from my parents' house. And, uh, I think it was about a month later. You know, over the the course of the time, me and my parents were kind of talking, like, hey, look, you're not racing anymore. This is the route you want to go. And I'm like, yeah, I think it looks fun. So, I want to say, yeah, I want to say it was like March uh, of 86. My dad took me over to Jack's house, and um, there was a group of guys riding there. It was, it was Jack, my friend Chris Salivar, and then Danny Sims, and... Um, a couple other guys, uh, Pat Smith, who was a skateboarder who I still talk to besides Chris and, um, they were all just sessioning this really terrible eight foot half pipe. And, um, I wrote a little bit and I was really terrified because it was like one, I felt like I was being judged by the older kids. Oh yeah. But at the same time, it's like I had a six foot undervert quarter and here I am riding an eight foot tall ramp with a foot of vert. And Jack was definitely known for having wonky ramps. So his ramp had like one of those pipeline skate park dips before the transition. Okay. And it was just because it was built like crap. But I like would didn't know how to hit that. So I would be pedaling across the flat as hard as I could. And I would almost like bounce across, like, gap across that bump, and then hit the quarter pipe, and I, I, it was just, it was kind of a nightmare, I, I, I don't even know why my parents were even like, okay, we'll go back again next week, see how this goes. Yeah. Um, and then, I think it was two months later, um, entered my first AFA comp, um, in San Antonio, and I was 12, I want to say... I competed against Ruben Castillo in ramps and Eric Evans and somehow I won and um I I, I is I Eric was is Eric Evans older than you? No, Eric is actually four years younger than me. So here I am twelve riding this this master that's super tiny and Eric is riding a pit bike. And, and Ruben's not he couldn't have been big back then either. Oh dude. Yeah, Ruben was, Ruben was, you know, Ruben was 13. What was he, what, do you remember what he was riding? Dude, he was riding Dino with, like, those Schwinn. Was he sponsored by Dinos by then? 
him and Robert, his brother, yeah. were kind of hooked up through Scotty Patterson, who was the AFA affiliate. Yeah. But Scotty had originally had this thing, and I think it was called Ultramax. And he sponsored, a, he had a GT co-sponsored team okay. in, in Texas. And that was like Craig Marsh and uh, I know Kevin Hall was on it. Oh, wow. And For racing? Dudes, for racing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kevin Hall lives up in Washington now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, dude, I talked to him. He comes down to our old time. school uh, yeah. things each dude, year. I mean, you know, it, dude, it was Kevin Hall, you know, it was like. He's in dude, rad. He's in rad, but he was like, he was like, <laughs> he, he was the local legend, dude. I mean, it was like, he was legitimately, he wasn't like Scotty Patterson GT sponsored. He was like legitimately oh, he was really on co-sponsored by GT at that point. And I think he's on Vans too. Oh, I'm pretty sure of it. Um, and you know, and, and that was the thing. And so Scotty had, I think Scotty was kind of moving away from BMX and was getting more into the freestyle side of things. And I know Ruben had an orange dyno, neon orange dyno. And he had, and I mean, Ruben was small. He rode those uh, Schwinn freestyle bars. Oh, the little ones. The little ones, yeah. yeah. He rode those. I remember that. And then his brother had a pink GT World Tour, or whatever the hell that thing was called. Yeah. And then there was another flatland rider named Ran- Ray Santian, who, dude, was unbelievably good. I mean, you know, Scotty was, was, was dialed with that. I mean, he definitely picked out a group of dudes that were all, like, on the cusp of, you know, becoming, you know, legends. You know, dudes that a lot of people would, you know, be like, that guy's amazing. You know, yeah. um, I, I remember, you know... Later that year, uh, at the finals, like, Ray won 16 and over flat, which was, like, pretty much harder than pro at that point. Yeah, yeah. And he killed everyone. And, I mean, dude, he... I mean, I watched the run today. You could watch... We could watch it right now. And it's like... Dude, it was just unbelievably smooth. It looked... His riding was definitely effortless. You know, and it, and it was crazy. Um, but... Yeah, and so they kind of just evolved from that, and um, I don't I don't know how I don't even know why Ruben rode ramps because it was really like he didn't really ride ramps to begin with, but it maybe he did it for overall I don't know, but he was in my my thing and and you know, beat him I beat him yeah, but I I'm, dude, that that's not really you know it, it's not taken away from Ruben because you know Ruben. Ruben was actually a really good ramp rider. I just don't know how I actually won it. But, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and then, the, you know, I went to my second contest a couple months into that month. And, you know, those contests were rad because the Texas scene was actually pretty big at, at that point. You know, and we did have, you know, the local affiliate that really wanted to make freestyle huge. Um, but at the same time, we were so close to Oklahoma, so we had Matt coming down here, you know, and... Is Matt the same age as you, or is he just... No, he's, he's two years older two than Two years me. older. But, I, you know, Matt rode in, at the first contest that I was at in San Antonio. Is that there was no 86? One, that was 86. He was 14 years old, and there was no one there to ride 14, 15 expert. So, he had to ride 16 and over expert. Yeah. 
you know, wasting just everyone. Just oh, demolished them. He demolished Was there anybody in that class that we even know of that went on in the 16-17 expert that had to compete against him? No one had... None of those dudes had competed against him, but it was... There was... Like, Jack Smith was in that class, and Jeff Latimer, and I don't know if you know who he is. Mm-mm. Dude, he... Easiest way to describe Jeff Latimer was he was the Texas version of Monty Hill. Okay. Like... Didn't really hear much of him, but he, and he, you know what, he was part of that Scotty Patterson thing too. He got hooked up with GT stuff. That dude killed it. Matt wasted him. Like, there was like no contest. Yeah. It was like, and Matt, Matt, Matt could have rode pro in those back then. Oh, I don't see why he couldn't have, dude. Yeah. You know, and it was so funny because it was like, Matt just shows up and he's like this goofy kid with this white Moto 4 helmet with these green like blobs all over his helmet and a chest protector. And, and kid, I remember, people weren't really wearing chest protectors back then, were they? No, dude, people weren't even wearing full faces. Yeah. Other than dudes in the skate park. And, you know, and I remember seeing him and I was like, who is this kid? Um, you know, because, you know, he really wasn't, you know, as, you know, he was not as tall as he is now. And, you know, he's still kind of a smaller kid, but yet he's got this shirt that's like a quad XL that's like down to his knees and... And I'm like, how's this dude gonna ride? Who is this kook? And dude just goes out. And he wasn't on Skyway yet. No, he was not. Dude, I think he was like sponsored by a local shop. And he goes out like at the first contest and uh, that I saw him at. And I mean, within like three airs, he's going like nine, ten feet. And everyone else is still doing like foot out feeler airs, getting used to the quarter. Matt's just like, whatever, dude, just pinning the throttle and cranking. And yeah, he ended up wasting everyone. He did, you know, we got to see the magnet air for the first time in real life, which was technically what the switch hander was. Okay. I remember I'd heard the stories of the magnet air from several guys that went to this contest in Tulsa where that Matt rode in, and they're like, yeah, he does this thing called magnet. They're like, what the hell's that? And switch hander air. He, like, gra- he takes his inside hand off, grabs, like, the left brake lever and takes his top hand off. And, Which you know, to me still seems fright like one of the most frightening tricks ever. It, it, it was actually pretty easy, but I think back then it was one of those things where it was just so bizarre because people weren't really thinking to do that, you know. Um, you know, but then again, Matt was fourteen and doing no footed cane cans when, dude, the, maybe half Dominguez. The pro, dude, Dominguez did them, but it was like half the pro class well, was barely even doing cane cans. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like maybe Dominguez, who was like. The top dude at the time could do them. Yeah. And, and, you know, and here's this unknown kid from Oklahoma going out there and, and doing tricks harder than most of pros. Um, you know, and, and he, yeah, he wasted them. It was, it was, it was funny. And then I think that was kind of a reality check for all the other dudes because the next contest you saw all of them trying a lot harder. Um, and then the second contest, the, the one that was in, near Dallas... I just remember watching Matt, and it had rained. There were storms all night long before the day of the con- before the day of the contest. You know, it was like 55, 60 degrees. It was cool out. So you know, the rain had stopped, and I remember cars driving around because it was outside, and they were driving around the parking lot trying to dry the concrete. And so, like, okay, it's dry enough, so you guys can ride the quarter pipes. And there's probably 100 yards between the wedge ramp and the quarter pipe. And you see Matt 
just get padded up, and he uh, just pedals as fast as he can to the quarter pipe. Hasn't hit it. No one's hit the thing yet. Matt's the first person to hit the quarter pipe. Does an eight-foot-out can-can look-back clicked. Like, at the time, dude, I don't think there was anyone doing can-can look-backs. Yeah. Completely in front of the bike, the way he does them still today. I don't know what happened. He ends up getting, like, locked in can-can look-back Which position. is the worst. It's so frightening to even think about that. <laughs> dude, <laughs> yeah, I just so vividly remember it. Hang sprocket. Just gets sent to the flat. Bounces up and just kind of, like, stands up. Looks like he... He's probably got a minor concussion. Gets up, kicks his bar, straightens him out, and everyone's just looking at each other like, what the hell is this dude thinking? Like, no one's even ridden the quarter pipe yet, and he's cranking out eight-foot airs that no one's even seen before. And probably you've never even seen dude slam like that, except for maybe, like, Hugo Gonzalez, which... Hugo's crash was was not even... was minor compared to this. This wasn't even... Dude, this was like the way he ate shit. Was it was like dude, career-ending type crash for yeah. most dudes. It seemed like, and he gets up and he's just kind of like, eh, whatever. Goes out, pedals around the wedge ramp and just cranks. Does it perfect next try. Does an eight foot out, click can can look back, second air warm up perfect. And everyone just standing there like. Okay. Like, at that point, when I saw that, that's when I was like, this dude is going to own the sport. Like, you knew at an early age. What what bike did Matt ride before he got on Skyway? Do you, I mean... I, 80, dude, I remember that bike clear as day. 85 Blue Haro Sport with... I, I saw it several times. One time I saw it with Tufts, another like time it with would, Peregrines. It feels like it would be a pile of shit. Oh, dude, it looked like the biggest pile of shit. Um, GT, <laughs> GT, GT bars, I think GT stem, um, laid back. Those, <laughs> dude, I, I mean, I just picture it like him pedaling, sitting down and it's, he's just like, it looks like he's all like hunchback and too small for this bike. And it's just got this massive laid back post and dude, it did. It, it definitely looked like the biggest piece of shit, but yet. It, it probably wasn't because I mean, well, I, I'm gonna take that back because I had my back wheel blow up at at the Tucson contest in '88 and had to ride Matt's bike. And dude, I got on it. I don't know how the hell he rode it. I mean, the spring was popped out on his front brake and his front brake's rubbing, so it's like every time you do an air, the front wheel's stopping. And oh, dude, his bike was. I, I'm like, dude, how is your bike such a piece of shit? And I almost resorted to riding Jason Davies' bike that had a coaster brake on it because Matt's <laughs> bike felt so terrible. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, that right then was when we all knew, like, second time it was like, if this dude goes to a real comp, like a master's comp, he's going to own everyone. Yeah, because these are still local contests. This was a local contest. And literally, I think, I think later that month was, was what, it was at Madison Square Garden. And that's where he got picked up by Skyway. Yeah. And the rest was history after that. It was like, you know, I, I think after that, it was like you're waiting to see a new issue of freestyling because there was going to be something ridiculous 
that Matt was going to be doing that no one else is doing. Yeah. And, I mean, it was just like, I remember the, dude, prime example was the first time of, like, Eric Evans told me that Matt was doing Indian Airs. And I couldn't understand. And I was like, what is he doing? And he's like, he's doing no-footed can-cans, but his legs are crossed across the bike. I'm like, okay. And he's like, but he's putting his inside foot on his back left peg. So it would almost be like you would do a no-footed can-can, and if your left foot is your can-can foot, he would put his right foot on the back chainstay platform and can-can over, which was weird as hell. And that's, and dude, I've got footage of Eric riding a quarter pipe doing them. Airs like that, like, at coping. Yeah. Foot on, foot literally, legitimately on the chainstay. And I'm like, wait, what? And then I saw Matt do it, and it was like, no. He's actually throwing his feet just over the frame. Um, but it was like, yeah. And then it was, just after that, it was like, what? what's next? How, so, you're going on the local contests and riding and stuff. Um, I'm, you know, sounds like you're riding Jack Smith and kind of getting a little crew, Chris Saldivar. Mm-hmm. How much longer was it? Because you got picked up by Haro really young. Yeah, I was 13. Um, so, like, what is that, the next year? That was the next year, yeah. I started at 12. Um, I mean, technically, we would say I started actually riding at 12, freestyle. And, um, yeah, it was AFA Masters Contest, um, last one of the year. I think it was, like, in November of 87. And, um... Where was, was it there? at? It was, it was the Velodrome in Carson, or whatever they call it now. Um, you know, I think... I know it was Carson, but I want to say, at one point, they said it was Compton. Um, oh, I think it was Compton. Yeah. I think it was Compton. It was, I know it was right next to Compton. Yeah, no, I think it, it was Compton. And, um, at the, at the Velodrome. And, yeah, it was the end of 87. Um, I was 13 years old, and, um... Me and my parents flew out there, like, kind of for a little vacation and went to, uh, we went to Pipeline the day before, and, um, contest was the next how, day. How was riding Pipeline, was, that little? It, scary as hell. I mean, you know, what What was the pipe bowl, like, 13 feet or 12 it, feet or something? I, I always hear different, you know, some people say, like, 13, some people say it's 15, you know. It's well, a, the Monster Bowl is 15. Yeah, but then some sure. people say the front bowl is 15, and I'm like, I think just some people just get the whole thing confused. Yeah, I, I, do, I know it was, dude, it was way big. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think the first time I went, which was summer of 87, um, I got like two feet, you know, and considering all I'd ever ridden was eight foot quarter pipe at that point, um, I got like two feet out of it, and... You know, if, if if we're saying that thing was 13, possibly. Because, I mean, I had heard 13 quite a bit. But it may have been 12. Even if it's 12, that's still a 6-foot air. You know, if you rationalize, like, oh, okay, well, hey, I ride an 8-foot. That's, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, were, any of the, were any of the uh, pipeline crew there the day no, you were there? There was no one there. Um, a couple. There was a couple skaters there. Uh, but they were all riding pipe bowl. And um, they were in the, com- not, the, combi. the combi, dude. Yeah, they're all in the combi, and I was riding pipe bowl. I mean, the first time I went, there was one dude there. Um, I knew I had a Dominguez strike zone, that's all I remember. 
Um, I'm sure a lot of dudes there had Dominguez. Strikes out. Doubt. But he, dude, he was older. He was probably like 17 or 18, and I mean, he was barely breaking coping. Um, but I got like two feet. I was stoked. And then if when I wrote it before the the finals, which was probably pretty stupid, because um, you know you're going from that to riding an eight foot quarter pipe the next day. Yeah. I think I got like four feet. Um, I, I'm not certain. I th- I want to say I think I got like three or four feet, and was just really stoked because it was so so gnarly. I mean, you know, all the dudes that I really looked up to were the dudes that rode there. You know, Blyther, Fiola, you know, Dominguez, Dominguez, Hugo, Sigur, Rich Segur. Well, Hugo's from NorCal, but he'd come down for but, the contest. Hey, dude, well, that, yeah, for sure. But the thing was, is the way that Hugo rode that. I was like, dude, Hugo's the man. Hugo, the footage of him doing like corner airs on the comedy bowl and stuff. Pretty nuts, yeah. dude. You know, and, and that was the thing. It's like, dude, even though that dude probably rode that bowl three times over the course of that year, dude, he rode it better than some of the dudes that rode it a lot. Ron said he was like one of the only dudes that would come from NorCal that would actually ride it in the contest. Because a lot of, I mean, you think some of, a lot of the pros back then, if you weren't really a local, you weren't really riding that in those, no. those, you know, you definitely weren't, and you know some of the footage that you know that we've seen of Hugo. I mean, dude, he, dude, he legitimately did the first wall ride out of that thing. Yeah, on the fence, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that was eighty four, dude, and that bank wasn't like you know your average like four foot tall bank to wall where it's a wedge ramp to that. Dude, that was a steep wedge to that wall, and or the fence. I'm sorry, but. You know, and that was the thing. It was like, I don't know. I rode that. I was super stoked. Next day, I was like, okay, I'm winning this contest. I mean, because that was kind of the mentality back then. You were you were either taking freestyle seriously and you were competing and you were going to try to be the best. Or that, or you didn't do it, you know. And, and that was back in the contest days where that's where it all revolved around. You know, your yeah. sponsorship was, you weren't sponsored because... You're an amazing bike rider. You were sponsored because you were going to win contests. And you get the most points or the, there was something. The title, whatever, who, yeah. Who at that contest, um, at the Compton Velodrome or Carson or what, yeah. uh, who was your main competition at that one? Do you remember? Dude, 87 finals, honestly, was Eric Evans. And he had beaten, dude, he won like every contest that year. Even though he was going coping. Well, I mean, that's the whole thing. Everybody always says that with Eric Evans, you know? You know, dude, and I I don't want to take anything away from Eric. Because, dude, there were no other little kids like... It was him and Greg Baycumber as the two little kids. But they were both insanely good. But it was like, how do you judge a dude doing an Eric coping versus... I know Eric Evans beat John Bristol in Portland. Oh, dude. John wasn't happy about it. Oh, dude, I was... was, (laughs) Dude, Eric never beat me in local contests. But every Masters contest, he beat me. And I'm like, wait, I did a fake year three feet higher than he went. How did... What? Like, it's Eric Evans. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I remember being pissed because, you know, granted, yeah, we were all competitive about it. And, you know, I'm getting beat by an eight-year-old and I'm like, this is shit. And, you know, it happened. But whatever. Um... So you roll in this contest, you're like, I'm going to smash it. Uh, yeah, I was like, it, it's on. And um, I rode to Anthrax because I was the metalhead Hessian kid and went out, did my run 
pretty much spot on, wrecked my look down fakie at the end, and uh, at the, you know, I was standing there, I think I was talking to Joel Alamo's dad, and he was like, you know, you rode really good, you know, blah, 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 because my dad and Joel's dad were, you know, were really good friends, and he was talking to me, and I remember this dude that I seriously thought was like a giant at the time, you know, he looked like probably like a football linebacker. It was Bill Hawkins, who was the team manager. He and Jim Ford walked up to me. And, uh, you know, they were like, you know, hey, you know, um, we watched your run. We were really impressed. You know, would you be interested in riding for Haro? And I'm like, what? Back then, like when people would go to contests, there was like dudes scouting out. It's not like nowadays, you know, where people just get to watch, you know, web edits or even before that, you know, there'd be video parts. Yeah. You go to contest and like scout dudes out. That's how you got sponsored. And I remember, dude, I was like, "What? Like, you really want me? No, this is, you know, in my in my head, I'm like, this is bullshit. This isn't real." And I'm like, "Really?" And Bill's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Here's my phone number." He's like, "You call me on Monday," and he was like, "We'll send you some stuff and we'll work out the details." Because, you know, I was a minor, I was only 13, he was like, well, work it out with your parents, so, you know, we can get all this, this situated. And I just remember standing there, and I'm like, what? Like, there's no way. Like, this, this isn't real. And he's like, we'll send you out a bike next week, you're good to go. I was like, no. Like, there's, there's just no way this is real. And, um, so basically, he gives me a Haro I think it was Haro, whatever the airwear, I think the airwear deco was pink or magenta, and it was the box letters, there was like that, and then there was a turquoise one. Maybe one said Haro Designs and one said airwear, I don't remember which one it was, but I know the, the sticker was magenta, it said Bill Hawkins, Haro Bikes, 619-438-4812, I think if anyone rode for Haro back in that day, they all knew that phone number, and um, I remember I walked you had to go under the track to get back over to the uh, to the bleachers, and so I walk across and you know um, I asked Joel's dad to watch my bike, and so I hung hung it up on this little rack. And the funny thing was, my bike ended up being in a Skyway ad because it was hanging up next to another Haro bike with tufts on it at the time. And I ran across and I told my parents, and I hand my dad this, and he's like, "What? What is this?" And I'm like. Um, they said they want to sponsor me. My dad's like, what? He's like, who was it? And so my dad walks across, you know, under the track with me through the long ass tunnel. We find Bill and, you know, Bill's like, no, we watched him ride at the contest. I think the contest was a month and a half earlier in, uh, in New Jersey. And he was like, we're looking for a younger, another young kid. And And they didn't have Matt at that time. Matt was still on Skyway. So I was still on Skyway. They had Mira. Mira was on a on a on a flow program before Mira got on GT. Oh yeah, Mira okay. Was on, Mira got on sometime in '87. Okay, I didn't know um, that. Yeah, he was on he was on kind of flow program, and um, I I mean I didn't know who Dave Mira was at that point either. Yeah. Um, because I had never competed against him. He wasn't at that New Jersey contest, so I, I mean didn't. even in New Jersey he lived in upstate New York, so it was still yeah up you know yeah exactly you know. 
And so Bill was like, no, we saw him at the AFA Masters Comp, you know, a month and a half ago, and we needed, we needed, I think at the time, it was like, well, Dave was going to be, was primarily a flat rider. Yeah. And they needed a young ramp rider. And so, my dad talked to Bill, you know, uh, that Monday, my dad called Bill, and bike, big box of stuff was sent out to me, and um, the rest was history. Uh, Did you get a master? I got an 88 black sport with white tufts and a pair of leathers, a jersey, a couple pairs of gloves, uh, some t-shirts, big packs of decals, um, do you feel like Do you feel like the packages you maybe got in the 80s were cooler than the packages you received in the 90s? Oh hell yes, dude! I mean, were they were they were they more epic, or do you think it was just like the time frame? I think it was. I mean, definitely, it was a lot of it was the time frame, without a doubt. Because one, you're a young kid, and it's like, dude, I'm getting product. I'm getting a free bike, or I'm getting whatever I want from the best company in BMX. Yeah, and I was so stoked. I didn't care. You know, I, I mean, granted. I went through 18 bikes that year, but... Now, now was your buddy Jack Smith, was he on Haro at that time? No, he was he was already gone. He was already shopping Skyway, I think, or something like that at that so point. So he was on Haro and already off of Haro by then? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He was on, I think they picked him up, like, uh, what was that? He was on, he got picked up at that Colorado two-hip comp. Okay. And I think it was like... No, you know what, dude? I take that back. He was still on. Two finals were the following weekend uh, after that AFA contest. And the, two, the the big two hit finals that were like the rock star ones. Well, the one the last one at the Enchanted House of the finals. So, oh yeah. For, the one where Grasso rode naked. So that's the eighty seven. Eighty seven finals, yeah. He rode at that contest and I don't know if that was a contest. Or, like, it was right around that time that I know he was off after that. Yeah. Um, and then he ended up riding for Skyway. I thought I he, mean, he was... Did he ride for General for a minute, too? No, no, no. Okay. No. He was... I know he was flowed... He was already getting flow, like, from Skyway just for Tufts. So, I, I don't know... I think that was kind of just how it evolved. I'm not... I don't really know what his whole deal was yeah. with all of that. Um uh, yeah, I mean, he ended up going. He ended up going to Skyway and whatever, um, and then yeah, he faded into obscurity. Um, but yeah, that I mean, that was all kind of right around that time. And uh, yeah, I was psyched. You know, it was th- those. I mean, if we go back to the packages, shit, dude. I mean, I went through a lot of bikes, and I mean, I think it was like every three weeks I got a new frame set. Um, well, it's, it's the 80s, people. Bikes broke. Oh, dude. I, I, yeah, I mean, but I was 14 years old. So it was kind of funny having to call Bill and be like, hey, can you send me a new frame? What happened? Broke it. And it's like, he was like, dude, Blyther hasn't gone through that many frames. I'm like, Blyther's like 21. He's partying with Dominguez. He's got a pet alligator. He doesn't, he rides like once a month. He did, he did have a pet alligator. He, he did. I think that thing's name was Action Jackson for some stupid reason. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. Dude, when 
dude, Blyther came to my house like a year later. Did you already we have? To the did you have a vert ramp at your house by that time? I had an eight foot. I had an eight foot, and then when Blyther came down, I had a ten foot. But I remember we went to the pet store because they sold caimans, and his caiman had gotten taken away for his pet alligator. And we were going to try to get him one so he could smuggle it back in his pocket on the flight. Oh, my God. Even though the game commission would have probably killed him because they had already taken his already. But, um, yeah. And so, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's just funny thinking about that. But, um, yeah, I mean, I went through a ton of frames. Um, I, yeah, I went through way too much crap. But then I, at the time, you know, I was 14 years old. If... During summer, I mean, I was going through a... Dude, I broke several frames a day. I got them. Um, I mean, literally, I would go out 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning. I would ride all day with my friends. We'd go ride ditches and, you know, go through schools and go find bank to walls and stuff because that was a cool thing to do. And we'd do that, and then we'd ride ramps at night. And, you know, mind you, dude, that's... On average, that's 12, 13 hours a day on your bike every day of the week. Of course, you're going to destroy a frame set in that amount of time, especially considering the technology they had back then. It was like, oh, it's chromoly. It's going to last. Yeah, well, you don't have somebody sitting in the, you know, sitting in the factory in Asia making sure that they are using actual chromoly. Yeah. I mean, how many bikes, dude, honestly, how many bikes back then do you think ended up having... Maybe one seat stay or one chain stay. Oh, I'm sure corner. Yeah, I'm sure corners were cut. I mean, for sure. And so, and and Haro honestly, out of all, did a good job. I mean, you look at the travesty of bully bikes of RL not having anybody over there. You know, it's like what I mean. Who even knows I, I, what those were made out of? You know, dude. Uh, so much of the stuff that was coming out of Taiwan back then was such shit. But you know, it was the economical thing to do at the time because you know if if you were a company and you came out I mean dude I remember I had a Redline RL20 and in 86 that thing cost dude I think the frame and fork was like 160 and that was an RL20 RL22 was like 250 frame and fork in 85 yeah that's expensive I mean dude though dude, that's that's, mo- a- that's more than my Wilkerson Airlines costed in 1990, and I freaked out because that frame and fork was 210 with bash guard. Yep. And the RL22, you know, five, six years earlier, still costed more than that. Exactly. And, you know, granted, that frame was going to last you forever yeah, back there's... then, but, you know, that was a thing. Um, but, you know, at the time they had five inch head tubes and there were. They were, they were 21 inch top tubes. They were huge, dude. They had like a 40 degree C tube angle, so that made it suck. But, you know, um, I, I I look back on that and it was like, yeah, those were solid. But, you know, they had to do what they could to keep the bikes cheap because they wanted to keep, you know, us into BMX. Even though our frame broke, it was like, dude, you know, Haro's and GT's lasted the longest. Well, and most kids' frames didn't break that fast. No, definitely not. But, you know, it was like, you were a Haro guy or you a GT guy? And I was a GT guy. I was not a I was not a GT guy. I was I thought, a GT guy. I mean, you know, I wanted a yellow GT Pro Performer when I saw that photo of Eddie laying on his back doing the one-handed quote-unquote turn bar endo. But, um, dude, I, I wanted that bike from day one. But, you, dude, but at the same time, I was, I was such a Haro nerd. Um, that was, like, the goal. Oh, dude, I, I have to have a Haro. Anything Haro was... 
the shit to me back then. And that's all I wanted. And, you know, then it was like, hey, I was on the team and it was like, whoa, um, I'm getting to travel around the country and I'm staying in rooms with Joe Gratola and Malaterno and stuff. And it's like, these are the dudes I look up to and that now they're my friends. And it wasn't even like they were my friends. They so were like my big brothers. In 87 stuff, were you touring? Or? No, I never toured. Um, I didn't get, I didn't tour. I just traveled. You were just I too to young for them to send you. I think that was kind of the thing. I mean, I think they wanted me to be 16 before. I think that, that was kind before of the they threw you I didn't in, drive. Before they threw you into sharks. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And, you know, and I, I didn't, I didn't tour with, with Haro at all. I ended up eventually touring with GT, but, um, with Haro, it was, I, I think it was like, they needed you to drive and stuff like that. And I was like, dude, I, yeah, I'm 14. I mean, yeah, I can drive illegally, but you know, you're like, I'm that, just going to sit in the back and eat candy the whole time. Pretty much. I mean, I would have, I would have been the annoying kid that would have probably been wasting my per diem on. And bl- GNS skateboard and, 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 and candy. And ruining everybody's chance with chicks on the trip. Oh, dude, I would have definitely been that kid. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, I can see it. I can, I can see it. I can and, see it. You know, and that's what would have happened for sure, dude. And, you know, whatever. I, I, I'm glad that I didn't because especially like the, you know, the summers that I, those two summers that I did, you know, that I would have been on tour. Dude, I was riding so much and progressing, but... At the same time, I started skating a lot more too, which really helped me help my riding a lot. Um, because you know, at the time, you know, when I when I first started riding anything over eight feet tall, um, I pedaled in the flat because I was too small. I didn't understand how to pump. Well, even a lot of pros pedaled in the flat back then. Yeah, and you know, you know, you look back on it, and it was like you really didn't need to. You should have just learned how to pump. And, but, Matt pedaled like a motherfucker in the flat bottom in 88. Oh, oh, I know he did. But he also went five feet higher than everyone else, true. But, you know, and then you had Dino, who pedaled in the flat no matter what, but he had a coaster break, so I guess he's forgiven. But, um, you know, I I progressed a lot, and, like, I started, you know, I was skating a lot more because I just started to hang out with skaters because, you know, I, I think I slowly started kind of falling into with those kids because I was getting ready to start high school. There weren't really any There were more dudes. skaters than BMX. There was a lot more skaters. And, you know, they had some ramps and stuff like that. So I started hanging out with those dudes. And because of skating, I learned how to pump. So I went from pedaling in the flat every time to maybe like one or once or twice out of like 15 walls, let's say 20 walls. And... It was, it was really, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, okay, I figured out how to do this. And, you know, and, and that was the thing. I mean, would I have loved to tour? Absolutely. I mean, I think that was kind of the thing we all wanted. But at the same time, I'm like, I'm kind of glad because even back then, you know, you went to so many contests. It was like one a month at that point. There's a lot of things, especially, you know, when you are in your mid-teens, there's a lot of things you miss out on. Yeah. Um, I mean, my freshman year of high school, I think I missed something like 94 days or something due to traveling. Um, due to traveling and being an idiot and getting hurt. Um, you know, and of course, I you know I ended up failing and had to go to summer school and night school and stuff just to make up all the class work that I had missed. 
Um, you know, and it, it was. It was one of those things where it was like, okay, I didn't get to go on tour, but still got to go to a lot of contests. And at those times, you know, there were street contests, or should we say street, more like a couple quarter pipes in a crappy car and a wedge wall almost thrown into a parking lot. And dudes were trying to figure out how to ride street. Yeah. And that's what I did. And, uh, I mean, those were my formative years, but at the same time, I mean, look back on how much I progressed during that period. Um, I learned so much wild stuff and, you know, especially like with my skate friends, you know, we would sit there and like, Hey, well, could you do this? Or could you do this? And we would just feed off each other. I'd come up with some stupid skate idea. They'd come up with a bike trick. We'd be like, all right, well, I'm going to try to learn it by the end of the night. And we just kept doing that. What, um, so how long did you ride for Haro for? Four, four years? 87 to 91. Okay, yeah. so let's talk really quick. Because you, I mean, to be honest, you may have had more frame sponsors than I think yeah. most people have had. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about, you have, as far as we know, the only one left of the 89 Haro Sport Bash Guard. Correct. Give a quick rundown. We'll post up a bike check with it. Yeah. Give give a quick rundown of the story of the bike, who got them, and and what's going, what happened with it. Eighty nine Sport. Um, at the time, the Bash Guard bike had been thrown out there. Uh, now was the mas- of it. it was was a, the master it, already out before no, this? Okay, no, not at all. Um, they had a couple samples made. Um, Lynn Caston built every one of them. Uh, first one was in an issue of freestyling and it was painted solid black had an aluminum plate on like a shiny glossy aluminum plate on yep. the bottom um had 88 haro sticker pack black with the blue lines and it was solid paint there was no chrome on it whatsoever um that was the first photo of it and it also did not have a gusset who was riding it no one was riding it was that. just a photo it was just a photo it was like a spy photo I think it was like right before Interbike or something. Yeah. And then, because Interbike I think was held like twice a year maybe back then. Hey, and we all know, well, a few of us know there's the controversy with GT and Magoo. Yep. So, but we'll can get to that. We'll that. get into that later. But yeah. Um, and so they had, they were making this, this bike with sprocket protect, protection because at the time everyone was starting to do. You are either doing sprocket grinds, pedal grinds, or if you did have a GT, like a sport you do the frame stand grinds, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was also bottom bracket grinds. Yeah. These were, you know, doing that. I remember grinding through bottom bracket shell all the way to my cup just because I kept doing bottom bracket grinds. I thought it was the coolest thing ever, and it was pretty much retarded. But, um, so yeah, they, they had designed, Bob had designed this frame with a plate underneath it to, uh, to basically um, show... Like a way to uh, to protect the sprocket. sprocket, and um, we were all kind of talking about it, and you know, I was I was psyched on it because I was doing rock and rolls and yeah, sprocket fakies and stuff. Yeah, I was learning how to do because I was I was riding with skaters so much. I was trying to learn how to do lip slides, like legit ones, like where you would land on your sprocket and slide. Yeah, and um, so basically. You know, they were, they were working on this frame, and I was like, well, that thing's rad. And I was getting ready to go out to California 
I think I think the first photo I saw that or we all saw that was probably around January, February of eighty nine. Yeah. And that was when it had those the eighty eight stickers on it. And that that shit it looked crazy. It I mean, was, it was just like you'd never seen a bike that looked like that. No, it was completely caught everyone off guard. And that's about the eighty nine I feel like is the year people were riding street, but that's the year where street started becoming like real like oh for sure real i mean real deal you know i mean that's when the bmx started or that's when brands started taking it seriously i I mean craig campbell had already done a wall ride 360 in 88 and i just stuff started rolling after that those first meet the street contests and stuff for sure and you know it it was it, it was all around that and so basically yeah they designed a bike to cater to that and uh I saw the photos, and I remember I called. And at the time, Bill Hawkins was kind of in and out of Haro. I think it was, he was getting ready to leave. Um, you know, freestyling, you know, or freestyle was kind of... It was on the fence. It was definitely, It was like yeah. right before the break. Yeah, before, you know, we hit a really huge slump. You know, and a lot of people were saying, you know, hey, we're cutting budgets. You know, at that point, it was like, you know... Uh, Josh was off GT. Dino, I believe, was off Dino. Um, Dino stayed on Dino till I think, like, 94. Yeah. Oh, wait, yeah, dude. No, that's right. Um, and then it was like, you know, you hear Wilkerson's leaving Haro, and Blyther's possibly leaving, and Nori's leaving. Fiola's off. Fiola had left GT, and it was like, money was falling out of the sport really, really fast. And... I, you know, I called and was like, hey, can I get one of those? I'm, you know, I'm going through frames. That thing's supposedly a lot better, blah, blah, blah. And I t- actually talked to uh, to Dean Bradley, who is between Dean and, um, what's the dude's name? Uh, me and Molotov Turner talked about him a while back. Uh... I'm drawing a blank right now. It's weird. Yeah. It's fine. Uh, we, had, we had Dean kind of acting as our team manager to an extent. And uh, I talked to Dean. Dean was like, hey, man, we don't have any. We just have the one right now. But, you know, we'll get you one. Don't worry about it. And I was like, all right, well, you know, maybe when I come out next month, you know, because I was, it was already planned that I was flying out in March during my spring break week to re-up my contract. And, you know, and I was actually going to do some school shows. And so, you know, I was psyched. I'm like, dude, I'm going to California. Harlow's giving me a new bike. Um, I get to do shows. I was so psyched. And um, I want to say two weeks prior, um, I had learned 540s. And, you know, and this was back 89. There were not young kids doing 540s. Yeah. It was unheard of. And I was doing them coping, maybe, maybe a little bit above coping. And I was like, you know what? If I can do eight foot fakies, I can do a four foot 540. So I ended up doing like a seven foot feeler air and I just spin a five. Spun it perfect, but mind you, I had an eight foot wide ramp, end up carving off the ramp. My oh, riding off my front wheel probably about three feet up, but the side of the ramp that I or the ramp wall that I did it on had a drop off on the other side. 
So basically, front wheel digs straight into the ground. I go straight to my head. My head smacks over into my collarbone. And my helmet ends up snapping my collarbone in four places. Ugh. So right then I know I'm not getting to do shows when I go out to Haro the next month. And I get out to Haro, and, you know, we were going through the stuff. Bob's all, you know, Bob's like kidney candy store showing me around. Oh, I got to show you this new thing I'm working on, blah, blah, blah. Pulls the bash guard out of the box. And, you know, and it had the, the orange and pink decals. Dude, I literally lost my shit. I was like, this is the raddest frame I've ever seen. And I'm talking to, to Bob, and I'm like, well, when can I get one? And he was like, man, I'd give you this one right now, which was the one from the Wild Things ad. He's like, I'll give you this one right now, but Lee's bike got stolen off the deck of the Enchanted Ramp yesterday, and he doesn't have a bike. And he's got to do the shows since I couldn't do them. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, you know, whatever. He's like, don't worry, we'll get you one. And I want to say like two weeks later, after I got back, and... Needless to say, I didn't sign my contract, which, you know, we've, we've discussed that at length, but um, it was for a pretty significant amount of money, um, because I won every, I mean, I won every contest that year in 88 um, that I entered. I ended up winning AFA Championship. I ended up winning... What year? How? No, what? 14. 14? I ended up winning, you know, uh, AFA Master Series. I ended up winning... Texas State uh, series for fourteen fifteen ramps. I ended up winning Texas Freestyle of the Year. I you know I won a lot of things um, that year, and you know my biggest concern was I wasn't concerned with money. I never got into BMX to make money. It was never about that. It was because it was something that was fun, and you know they flew me and my mom out because I was a minor to sign the contract and. You know, it was, it was, it was a really large amount of money, um, considering how dead freestyle was at that point. Too, yeah. Or the, where it was at that point. And, um, I just remember sitting in, in there and it was Jim, Bob and Dean. Oh, and Brad Lusky. Brad Lusky was the other dude that was yeah. the acting team manager. And he, they were all in there. With me and my mom, and they're like, okay, we'll just sign this. And I looked at them, and I'm like, well, hey, am I going to be able to get bikes when I need them? What do you mean? I'm like, well, I went through 18 bikes last year. Am I going to be able to get a bike when I need it? Well, if we have it in stock. But what if you don't have it in stock? Then I can't ride. So... In my 14 or 15 year old brain at that point, I'm like, well, I'm not signing the contract if they're not going to give me but bikes. But you didn't realize you, you'd have to buy all the bikes even if you, <laughs> you'd be breaking bikes anyways. Yeah, I'm like, dude, even if I broke a bike, like, I look at it now and I'm like, dude, I could have just gone to the shop and bought one. Like, it would have been fine. But just, you know, whatever. So I didn't sign it. And, but the way that my contract was written from the, day, the year before, it would just continue on. Yeah. So it continued on the same way where, you know, they'd, pay all my expenses and so on and so forth. And so I just left it at that. I was, I was happy with that, you know, whatever. Um, and so right around that, I, about two weeks later I got home or from that trip and Greg Neal, who worked at trend at the time called me and he said that spike was going to be in Austin for the masters. 
and they wanted to do something with me for freestyling. So, because, you know, I'd done so well the year before. So I called, um, I called Haro, told them, and they're like, okay, well, we'll have you a bike, we'll have you all this stuff by then. And I remember I was like, well, hey, can, I know you're going to make it in red, can you get me a red one? Like, well, we'll see, whatever. You know, they probably didn't. They're like, whatever, we're just going to send you whatever, you're going to ride it, who cares? So, um, I want to say about, the contest was like a month and a half after that, and I wasn't able to ride literally until the week prior to the contest, Yeah, and because of my collarbone, and I remember getting home every day and just being pissed because my bike hadn't shown up, and then I get home, and my bike's there, and I open it up, and I just see chrome, and I'm just like, this sucks, like I was so devastated, and as I'm looking at the frame, I'm like, wait a minute, this isn't right. What the hell is this thing? Like, this thing's screwed up. So, I pull it out, and I'm like, is this supposed to be a sport? Because the way that the top tube juncture is, it's like a single top tube into a master. It was kind of bizarre. And I didn't know what the hell it was, so I called, I called the offices and talked to Bob. And Bob was like, no, we had a batch of frames made just for the ramp guys. Because the sports are longer than the Masters. Sports are longer than the Masters. They're more ramp, you know, based. You know, I think that at the time that the head angle was a little bit steeper and they were an inch longer or something like that. And it was just more stable. And he was like, we had you guys each a frame made. And I was like, really? So, you know... Here I went from, you know, completely unknown kid in 2000, and, or 2000, 1986, 87, to having a one of six Haro sport frame built by Kasten, who, you know, at the time was considered like the best frame builder in the yeah. world in BMX. And so, you know, I built it up. Mind you, it weighed 40 pounds, 42 pounds back then, which was pretty heavy considering my bike the year before probably weighed 28 or 30 and um it was because it's you know the tubing but um there were six of them possibly seven we're not no one can pinpoint it if the sample that was stolen from the enchanted house was lee had we know it was a black one but no one lee doesn't or lee didn't remember when we talked about it briefly if it was a sporter or master yeah but Wilkerson got a red one with black forks. So it was red front end, chrome back end, black forks. Hoffman, That's the Jimmy Z bike that everybody, the, yeah. That everyone, yeah, loved. Then there was, Hoffman got the black chrome frame with black forks. And destroyed it. Oh, he destroyed that thing. And Wilkerson, we know he destroyed it because I think he, the first photo we ever saw him riding, it didn't have a bash plate on it. I mean, Wilkerson got a lot of coverage on that bike, though. He got a ton of coverage on that bike. And it was the big... I mean, dude, you don't want to talk about piece-of-shit bikes, dude. That thing looks... Ron's so bikes are still pieces of shit. Oh. He, no no it, offense, Ron, but your bikes are falling apart every time I dude, see them. Uh, yeah, I saw his bars move, jump in the mega ramp, and I thought it was a shit. So who else got one? Eddie got one? Ed, Eddie, Eddie Roman got one because he was, he was doing like they... The Hoffman... Like, Hoffman took the half pipe that year for tour. And they had like a sub box and like a little street area, thing, yeah. I think, in Eddie Road Street. So Eddie got a chrome one. Brian Blyther got a chrome one. Lee Reynolds got a chrome one. And I got the other chrome one. So six accounted for. 
possibly seven. We're not sure, but you know, black one Matt had was in was it, I think it was in Agro right or Agro Man. Yeah. And you know, I'm almost certain that thing got destroyed. Um, Blyther, I remember wrote his for a little bit, and then he hated bash guard frames. Yeah, he hated. It. He he wants a light bike. Yeah, and he, dude, I think he wrote it for a little bit. Who knows what happened to his? But I know that we got him in May of that year of of eighty nine, and in August of eighty nine, there was. That two hip comp in Colorado, or maybe it was July. The one at the baseball field. The one on the baseball field. Where Leo field. Chen came out and blew everybody's Did mind. A decade peg chink ice pick bonk thingies, yeah. Yeah. And Blyther was riding an eighty six sport, Chrome eighty six sport with eighty nine master decals on it. So yeah, that that definitely hit who knows what happened to his. Eddie Roman, I have no idea what happened to his. And Lee's Chrome one, the more I'm starting to find out, it sounds like his was burned up in the trailer when the van caught on fire. That makes sense. So no one really even knew that the frames existed up until four or five years ago, I guess, whenever I kind of leaked it. Yeah, Yeah. I, I kind of showed it on... I don't remember if I showed it on BMX Museum or something, but I think it was like when I first started... <clears throat> talking to Dom and I was like, Hey, you know this? And he was like, I was like, Hey, I have this. I'm not sure if you're interested in it or whatever. And he was like, wait, what? And I sent him some photos and it was kind of like, wait, these existed. And then as I slowly, you know, kind of started communicating with some of the, you know, the old school collector guys to an extent, you know, um, started communicating with a handful of them and they were like i didn't even know that that's what those dudes were writing i thought they were writing masters and then they start noticing these photos and they're like wait it's one to two top tubes and it, it was kind of one of those things i think was very baffling to a lot of people because they all thought we were writing you know the typical master um besides the geometry being 88 sport geometry, you know, um, they're all 065 chromoly tubing. Um, so who knows what the production ones were? I mean, yeah. 035, I doubt they were 049 cause those things were terrible. Um, you know, they were longer. They didn't have, uh, cable guides on them. They didn't have coaster tabs. Um, I even want to say the actual bash guard plates on ours were a little bit thicker um, or maybe a better quality aluminum because I had four or five of the production ones and you do like three or four sprocket grinds on a, on a concrete ledge and it was wasted. And I rode mine quite a bit until I got a production master and it's not that grinded. Yeah. And you know, my, or my, and then also the, the tubes that run from that one tube under the bottom bracket are still in one piece. Yeah. You know, my, they're not on my master, enough. mine are all dented up. Yeah, and it's like, dude, you can, you know, we're looking at it right now, and there's not dent in them. They're scratched, but they're not dented. Um, you know, and, and that was the thing. I, I didn't ride it. It got hung up in the garage because it was too damn heavy. Um, I couldn't ride it. I, I, I mean, So well, you I only rode it for a short time. I rode it up until, I rode it from May of 89 until like, I want to say maybe September. September or uh, September maybe 
And they sent me a red one. They sent me a red frame and fork, which I was super psyched on. Yeah. Even though it was a master. Um, but so, yeah, I had a red one. So just for everybody to know, this is we're just talking about this Haro Sport, probably the rarest Haro in the world. It could be. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I will say, that I'm not going to say it's the rarest because there is the uh, Chris Potts um, invert frame that I've brought to some people's attention. They have no idea it existed, which has the same top tube as mine, but it was painted in black, blue, and chrome, 89, or 88 model, but had the same chainstays as an 86 Sport or Master. Didn't have 990 mounts, and it had an invert decal set on it. Okay. Um... If if you find any any photos of it, he was riding it at the uh, Colorado Tulip Comp in '89. He had it there, and then there was an issue of BMX Plus. I want to say he's doing like white zombie one footer out of a vert ramp on it, and if you look at it, you can tell that's what it is. That frame, that was the only one I ever saw that. So that was probably the rarest okay, one, but I right. doubt it's in existence anymore. Um, but issue wise, I mean, yeah, it's probably, I would say out of all the original horror stuff, yeah, it's definitely probably one of the top, like three or four rarest frames they ever built besides the elusive, you know, single top tube sport, but oh yeah, and the good ad- luck on finding one of those. I mean, you know, well, they, Rich it, Road one and Dominguez had one. Yeah. I forgot about the single top tube sport. So, mm-hmm. um, so now we're kind of rolling into the nineties BMX. Yeah. Okay, go piss. Go piss. I'll pause. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let's go over. I mean, the '90s kind of roll in. I mean, you. I think even before Haro, you're more known for. I mean, you can't break the stigma of homeless bikes, but there were a few sponsors. Let's just hit them really quick before before the homeless things. Right after Haro, did you go to Bully? Yeah, I did. What What was up with Bully other than you probably been in the back end of the bike? Where do I even begin? Um, and how long were you on? You weren't even on Bully that long, were you? No, dude. I was on Bully for... I was on Bully for... I got on August... Of, dude, I was... Literally, dude. It was like a weird period. So I, I was... Haro was kind of like weird with us, with us at the time, kind of, and they weren't really giving anyone anything for some reason. I, I know Hoffman was getting a little bit of product, but, and you know, he was like their team, but the, it was kind of really bizarre of how it was set up, and I was like, well, hell, dude, I, I kind of don't even feel like I'm on anymore, so Pete Kearney had come through during the summer on Bully Tour. He put in a word for me and was like, send him a sponsor me tape, but I want you, I want you on Bully if you, if you would be into it. I'm like, dude, if, yeah. And so at the time, I really don't think we had a team manager at Haro. So I just called and said, Hey, you know, I'm looking elsewhere because I need some sort of support and ended up on Bully for, yeah, in the, you know, I, I want to say it was in. I want to say it was August of 90. I got my a Bully 2. And, oh, you got uh, a Bully 2 first? They sent me a Bully 2. 
And by October, I had snapped the brake bridge off. And the back end was twisting. December, they sent me... No, November they sent me a Bully 2 prototype. Or a Bully prototype with the vice. The vice. That, that, oh, that god-awful piece of crap. And they sent that and... Dude, literally, the first day I wrote it, the entire back end twisted. It well, bully two, the Bully 2s were actually stronger than Bully 1s. Oh, they were way better. Because and, I had a few friends that actually rode those for quite some time because they didn't have the weak spot of where the bash guard had no support in the bottom. Um, how long were you on Bully for? Through February of that year. And did uh, you ride... 91. You rode one contest on Bully? Two. I rode... Um, I want to say I rode two up in Palm Springs. I was going to say the Palm Springs. Palm Springs. Because you had the it, yellow bully bars. No, I had black bars. I had black Haro knee savers on at that time. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, I want to say, uh, what was... Uh, so Palm Springs Palm and... Springs and Thrasherland 90 finals in January of 91. Were you writing pro yet then? No, 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 no. I was still amateur. And um, my bike was haggard. Jay and I, actually Miron had Miron the other was, prototype. He was on Bully at that time too. Yeah, he had the other prototype. And we were talking. And I think he was running like pitchforks or something. Because he'd gone through so many Bully forks. And RL was like, I don't have any product to send you guys. So then I broke, my friend was just destroyed. Jay's friend was destroyed. We were talking about it, and I'm like, well, dude, if I can't get anything, I'm going to bounce. So I think I got like third or fourth in that contest, and I, and, I called and RL. And just straight am, right? Yeah. Um, Mira won, I think Mira won, Thorne got second, and I got third. It's something like that. Yeah. And, um... And I want to say I called um, RL the following Monday and told him how I did. He was all stoked. I was like, I need a new frame. And he was like, man, I don't have any. I'm like, dude, I cannot ride. And I remember my parents and me shooting photos, taking them a one-hour photo lab, and putting it in an envelope and sending it like priority mail Showing RL how destroyed my bike was. So needless to say, I ended up getting a Chrome Bully 2 with a vice. And, I, dude, I think I put it together. And literally, the bottom bracket height was probably like 10 inches. If you barely leaned and your cranks were down, you, you like jackknifed and you got bucked. Um, and... It, it was, it was, dude, it was such a pile of crap. And I remember calling him, I was like, what is wrong with this thing? Like, it's terrible. And he, um, oh, oh, I'm having problems in Taiwan. I'll send you another frame. So he sends me another bash guard with a vice. And it was worse than the first one. And it was even worse than the Bully 2. It was just a pile of crap. Um, and I, I put it together, dude, and I don't remember what, it, it, like, my back wheel would not line up. 
And so we took it to the bike shop, and they had one of those park tool uh, frame benders. And they aligned my back end with this, like, it basically looked like a piece of pipe with a piece on it so you could, like, twist stuff. And I, I called RL that day and was just like, dude, I, I can't, my back wheel doesn't even line up. Maybe your wheel's not dished properly. No, my back wheel was dished properly. You know, we checked everything. It, frame was just screwed up. Yeah. So um, I told him, I was like, well, dude, we need to do something. He's like, all right, we'll send it to MCS and there are, they're distributing it for us and they'll send you a new frame. So I send my frame to MCS. Mind you, dude, I don't have a bike to ride. Yeah. And I'm not knowing what I'm going to do. And I'm just like, this sucks. And I don't know what to do. So I call MCS and ask, where, what's going on with my frame? And they're like, who are you? And I'm like, I ride for Bully. Like, I'm on the team. You know, I'm telling them all this stuff. They have no idea who I am. And, like, five minutes later after I hang up, at the time, I believe it was RL's ex-wife, Molly, worked at Bully in, in, at the home office in California. She calls me and she's just livid and just chews my ass. Why'd you call them? Blah, 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 blah. You need to be talking to me. And I'm like, I've tried talking to you and you won't help me. I need a frame. Like, I'm a sponsored rider and I don't have a bicycle. Like, what what, what do you want from me? I can't believe you did this. Blah, blah, blah. And so, at the point, at that point, I'm literally about to go to Trend, talk to my parents, and I'm like, I don't have any money. But we call Trend and Tina was like, yeah, I'll sell you, like, a dyno comp or a haro at cost. And she's like, just call Haro and ask him for a bike. And I'm like, no, because everything was just kind of, it, it just seemed like everything was really kind of in limbo how things were being, were at that point. And BMX was so dead at that point. Yeah, and I just didn't feel justified because there weren't enough contests. And it's like, dude, what am I going to do for him? Like, you know, so Greg calls me back about 10 minutes later and he's like, hey, you need a frame. And I'm like, yes. I'm like, bullies not giving me anything. I don't have a bike. And literally, Bully, I think, folded just right after that. I think, I think RL, like, finally was like, dude, we can't sell this shit. And pulled the plug on it. So, um, about five minutes, you know, like I said, my phone rings and it's, it's Greg Hansen, who worked at Trend. It's really tight with Wilkerson and, and, you know, Kevin Martin and stuff at the time. He's like, you need a bike. And I'm like, yeah, dude, I, I can't ride. There's nothing I can do right now. And he's like, can you come to Austin right now? Yeah, I, I, I should be able to. Let me see. And, you know, it, it, I think it was like 7 o'clock that night already. And, um, you know, I was only like 17. I knew my parents weren't going to let me drive to Austin by myself. So, went in the house, talked to my dad, and was like, hey, can you take me to Austin? It's like, for what? And I'm like, Greg Hansen wants to talk to me. You, you probably need to come along, too. So we go up there and he was like, look, I talked to Wilkerson. We've got this prototype Wilkerson Airlines frame. He wants you to ride it. You're breaking every bike that you get. You'd be a proper test for it. And he wants you on the team. 
which I don't know what that actually meant at that point because, you know, Bron didn't have any money and hell, he didn't even have frames. Yeah. So, um, and I mean, I think they were even trying to do like a pre-order back then just to get money to... I I mean, when I pre-ordered mine, it took like eight months or more before Before I, I got a bike, you know? For sure. And, and so, I didn't know what... And I was like, alright, well, hell. You know, and they had said that it was... You know, the frame was the same as a, a Haro... You know, a Haro Sport. So, I was like, well, hell, dude. Then, count me in. You know, that's a... That's the bike I rode anyway. So, let's, you know, do that. And yeah. so, um, I went... I got... I went up there. He gave me... Two sets of forks. Were they the Botima style Wilkerson oh, yeah. forks? They were those things. And he gave me two sets of forks, and he gave me a frame, gave me a couple two hip t shirts, some stickers, and um, that was that. It was like, all right, you're on. Whatever. So um, I think it was about a month or two after that was um, that big three day contest. La Jolla Street Comp, uh, Half Pipe Comp at, at the Lawn's House Grove, and then uh, Mission Trails Dirt. And so I went out there. I don't know if Ron ponied up the cash or if Greg Hansen did. Somebody paid for my plane ticket, and my mom flew out there with me just because you know I was young still and I couldn't rent a car or anything. And so she went with me because she had business to take care of anyway, and. I went to the contest, and Vert didn't end up happening because not enough AMs showed up. I think it was me and Dave White were the only two AMs, and he was going to ride, like, novice or intermediate Vert. I was going to ride expert because Mira wrecked at Mission Trail, so he wasn't going to ride Vert. Okay. Oh, he wrecked on the death jump or he something. Worked on, he worked he, on... Yeah, he got worked on the death jump, if I remember. And then... Um, we ended up just doing like a demo. And then the following day was La Jolla Street Contest. And I uh, I got second there. And I, I mean, dude, I was I was really psyched. And then I think there was a, a couple more con- like local trend contests and stuff back then. And I just wasn't... I don't know, dude. It, it just didn't feel like I was really going anywhere with the Wilkerson deal. But the frame was holding up. Frame was holding up, but there was just kind of a part of me that I didn't really like it. It it was it was so strong, dude. I mean that it, in that period of ninety one that was probably the strongest frame ever. Yeah. But I hated the way it rode. It rode like complete shit. I love the way mine rode. <laughs> I will argue to the day I die. I, I hated <laughs> the way mine rode, dude. It just was. It just I, maybe I don't know. Maybe mine had different geometry, but it rode like shit. And one of my friends that I rode with, he had a dude. He had a mini ramp that was six feet tall and had vert, and it had so much flat bottom on it that he had a four-foot street spine that was set up next to his jump box in his yard, and we'd put the street spine in the middle, and it made it have perfect flat on each side of the street spine. Yeah. And, I mean, it probably had 40 feet of flat. And he had an Air Master, and I remember I remember seeing Hoffman's prototype at that contest and thought it was the raddest-looking bike. And 
I'm like, dude, I want one of those. And I wrote it, and it felt, it felt really good. I felt comfortable on it. So I went home, called Trend, asked them if they had any, and they did. And I, I called Haro. I don't remember who I talked to at Haro. It, it may have been Dean. Um, it, I think it was Dean, possibly. Yeah. And he was like, yeah. He was like, we'll give you a bike. So I called my friend, who was like a year older than me. I was like, I'll give you gas money. Let's go to Austin. So we drove up to Trend. Haro sent them a frame and gave me an Airmaster. And, um, and so I rode those up in, you know, for probably eight months. And I, I, dude, I had quite a few of those, um, just because they were, you know, they were not very strong, but they felt amazing. They looked amazing too. Um, but, uh, I rode those up until technically homeless was started. And then when homeless, when homeless came out, I, it was already Ruben. It was Ruben Perrick. Ruben Perrick and Sheps. And that was, t- like, them. And I think Giat was supposed to be on it, too. And, um... And they asked if I, you know, wanted to ride one of those. And I was like, hell yeah, you know? And was this after they'd already put out one of their videos? Oh, that, that was... Dude, the third video was out by the time that happened. Yeah. Um... Yeah, because Highway to Hell was the third one and that was you know that came out toward the end of 91 like fall of 91 and I you know all the footage I think I'm riding in that I was riding Vert and I was riding a Wilkerson frame and uh, in Highway to Hell in Highway to no yeah in Highway to Hell and then when Trash came out like then right around after that ended they were kind of already toying with trash i don't even think trash was deliberate but they were just like hey do you want to ride one of the bikes yeah absolutely and you know the thing was i was down with everyone at trend i was down with tina i was down with greg you know and it was kind of like trend was really involved with it and i was like okay this is the right fit and so i went on to ride you know for homeless up until it's the way i will say it and a lot of people will probably get pissed at me for saying it this way but up until the end of 93 when it's demise, when we all, when Greg decided to take over the full company, there was, you know, the drama between him and James and it was like, Hey, we're going our own way and we're not dealing with you at all. And, um, and so it, it just seemed like a, a, a fit, you know, they were, they were my friends. Yeah. You know, I've been friends with Parrick since 86. You know, Ruben was part of it, and, you know, and I was friends with, with Giat at the time, and... How was, you know, how was filming for Trash? I mean, that video's kind of... You know, I feel like with the... You know, you got the... You were on Haro and all the other stuff, but you were just kind of like more of a contest kid at the time. You know, and you're getting coverage, a little bit of coverage and go and freestyling. But, I mean, that was like your first real deal video part, and I... Oh, yeah. That was, like, when I first kind of, you know, I, I knew who you were, but that was kind of when I first, you were brought to my attention. And I did think it was weird that you didn't have any vert riding in that part. 
I wasn't riding vert. I didn't have anyone to ride vert with. And, you know? and that was kind of right at the point where all the vert ramps died, too. Yeah, I had a vert ramp, but the thing was, is the layer had gotten rotted because the way that the layering was originally done. The seams matched up, so water would seep through yeah. and end up rotting out. And so I built a five-foot mini ramp behind the vert ramp. Um, but, you know, I, I still wanted to ride vert, but I didn't have anyone to ride with. You know, at that point, Steve-O, the Goot, had moved to Austin. Those were the dudes that, that I was riding vert with because, you know, my, my friend Chris, he kind of stopped riding altogether. I think he was working, like, a real job, and, and you know, he didn't have time to ride. So, you know, it was, it was basically me not having anyone to ride with, and that's why I went the mini ramp route. Yeah. Um, and, I, and because, you know, and also hanging out with skaters so much. I had, you know, I was riding with those dudes and riding a lot of mini ramp and having a lot of fun, and I was burnt out on burnt. Did, you know, did you feel a time when you guys were filming for homeless? Did it feel like it was going to be a video that would kind of? I mean, it, that video really held its own till like two thousand in a weird way. It kind of did, and I, I mean, dude, I, I think I can I, I can say it in. The way that I can describe that video is such an oxymoron where it was accidentally on purpose. You know, it was completely accidental that I think the video turned out to be what it was. Yeah. I think the it was planned to make a video of what we were all doing and it just ended up being this huge deal. And... Dude, even, you know, dude, I don't think I even realized it. Dude, none of us did. I I mean, I know, like, Tina saw the sales of how many there were of those videos moving. And I know Peric did, too. But at the same time, none of us knew. None of us knew they were, you know, moving less. And, I mean, dude, I don't even know what the numbers are. But let's say they moved 5,000 units of that thing. Dude, none of us knew that. Yeah. You know, um, but then it was like that Hoffman comp... The first one that he had at the warehouse, and there were dudes like coming up to us and be like, "Dude, I saw your part in trash. It was so awesome." And it's like, "Wait, what? Like how? What? What? what, what? Like you know?" And it was, it was so. It really caught me off guard because I think I went from being identified as the young kid that rode for Haro as a vert rider to guy riding for the rider owned bike company that was a good mini ramp rider and. Yeah, I mean, I thought of you, I mean, you definitely had some street stuff, but I thought of you more of as a mini ramp guy yeah. after that, you know? And and that was the thing, because, I, I mean, dude, that's what I rode. I mean, I had fun riding and skating mini ramps, you know? That's still to this day, dude, that's probably my go-to thing. I, I mean, I, I love riding vert, but, dude, I, I've got way too much on the line to risk, you know, getting hurt from riding vert, and... You know, I have fun. Dude, I can go out and ride a mini ramp. I I can go and do nose picks for eight hours straight, and I can leave with a smile on my face. Yeah. And, you know, dude, I could go skate it and do 50-50 grinds and fakie rocks and be stoked. Um, and that's just what it is. Um, but, yeah, I, I think it, it really caught all of us off guard because we really didn't expect it. To be that way, um, you know, and that and that kind of goes into this one thing where, you know, people were like, I, I know that I've heard in the past that there is some bitterness, well, 
why wasn't this person chosen? Why wasn't this person chosen? Why was this? How did they pick the team? Blah, blah, blah. Dude, there was no picking a team. It was basically a group of dudes that rode together. And, you know, I, I think, I want to say Trend really bankrolled a lot of, like, the frames being done. Um, or Greg had somebody do it. But it was really just a group of dudes that were all, like, sponsored by Trend. And we rode together. We all rode Power Plant on, I think it was Thursday, Tuesday nights or Thursday nights for, during Old Man Session. Which is funny thinking old man session back then because the dudes were like 25. Yeah. And now it's like, dude, I'm 42 and I'm at the park and, you know, I'm like not the youngest one there, but, or not the oldest one there, you know? And, and it's kind of funny because it's like, dude, old man night was 25 and now it's like, dude, I'm 17 years older than that. Like, yeah. come on. But, you know, um, it was one of those things where, it was just kind of, that's how it evolved. It was a group of dudes that rode together, and we ended up, it ended up being what was a spoof on Club Homeboy started by Sheps and, and, and Perrick into a bike company that ended up kind of helping push, one, video making as well as the way that people looked at riding in a whole different light. Definitely pushed, I mean, that video definitely pushed street riding from... I mean, you got your first, like, real handrail tricks. You got, it. you know, your first, maybe your first, like, I mean, I'm sure somebody maybe did it before. But, you know, you had Sheps doing manual to tooth grinds down rails and stuff. So, I mean, it definitely was a severely progressive video. You know, you can ask a lot of people, and it's probably in their top five videos, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those things. Um, he, um... You know, it definitely was, you know, um, we didn't, it's so hard to say all of it about it, but yeah, I mean, it really was one of those things where it was like, it did push things. Um, and it is funny because it pushed riding, but at the same time there, there were things that it and I think this is something that you know you and I had discussed this the other day, but it brought to light where somebody may have done something first, completely in a different area, and that not been the first. Um, I will put money though that Goot's handrail to one eighty was the first. Oh, that was hard one eighty. That no, was even no, it's, it's, it's regular one eighty. It's not hard. It's regular. I thought he did one to hard one eighty. Nope, it's regular one eighty. And, okay, well, regardless, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't, that, without... He did a look down, too, off of it. He did do a look down. (laughs) I mean, you know, but it's one of those things where it was, a couple years later, I was going to Waterford with Moloturno, and we we had a really good discussion about it, and he was like, dude, we watched your video part, and we thought you stole all of our tricks from Roger's Garage, and Happy Days, and I'm like, Rick, I still haven't even seen those videos. Yeah. And he was like, what? And I'm like, no, because when all of that came, when, when Trash came out, in that whole, like, year prior, like, when Trash was being filmed for, dude, that was when there was a lot of flack between companies, like, between... Homeless and s Homeless and s and and Standard. All of that, yeah. You know, and there was static. So because of that, 
No one watched videos. No one would why you know, Trin would only order like their videos if they had already been sold and stuff like that. So we didn't have the opportunities to see that stuff. Yeah. And you know, it definitely opened up my eyes because I know there were quite a few like vert tricks that I felt like I had done first up until that point. Like, you know, candy canes and, and, and things like that where I was like, Oh, I know I haven't seen anyone do this but then it was like, Oh shit, you know what, if Molotono is telling me that he thought I copied their stuff and I'd never seen it. Who's to say that there is not some kid in the middle of Alaska or, you know, Paraguay for whatever that's doing the stuff that we don't even know exists. Yeah. And that kind of, that was definitely an eye opening moment for me. But, you know, to, to go back to it, yeah, dude, we, I don't think anyone interpreted what trash would do much less what homeless would do. I, in all honesty, and I mean, maybe it's just my view of it all, but I feel like trash made it was the, the video that started the possibility of showing that, you know what, you can be a, a pro writer and film or shoot photos and not solely be a contest writer. Yeah. I think it's definitely right around there. And, you know, and it did. It was right around that time because Sheps didn't really like to compete. Parrick definitely didn't like to compete. Lee, Lee didn't. didn't. Dude, Lee hated contest. I mean, from what I And remember. Lee's got one of the most memorable parts in that video. Oh, for sure, dude. I mean, I think he, he has the first, you know, debatable first grind up rail. Oh, dude, definitely. I mean, uh, he did that. He did. He dude. did like a super good ice grind with a kink at the end. Dude, he did the, the ice break grind on the flat rail. Oh, with the drop. drop on yeah, the oh, side. I forgot about that, yeah. Dude, you know, there there is that stuff. And, dude, hell, he, you know, I mean, I look at everyone's parts in that. And everyone had, like, Chase Gouin riding street. Dude, 540 bar spin off a, a ledge. Pull-up bar, so it's fully modern oh. for the kids. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know about the pull-up bar, but whatever. But, yeah, I mean, dude, I think he did, didn't he do double peg to, to he, bar spin off a rail? Half bar. I think bar it was, flip. So it, it was a bar flip. Yeah, yeah, and then he double peg grind that same rail that Lee did the ice grind on, I think. Didn't he? The flat one, I think, yeah. Yeah, the one with the big drop? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we could sit, literally sit here, I think, and talk about Homeless. Yep. And the, the rest of our the, lives. You know, and done. Trash was their last video, wasn't it? Yeah, Trash was okay. definitely the last video. And then it just kind of literally, you know, we, I mean, we, we could literally be stuck on Homeless for like two hours. Yeah, but then right after Homeless, you were in another really influential video. I don't think you had a full part, or maybe you had a mixed part with, in Standard Style Cats. Yeah, I did. I had a split part with Lucky. And Lucky's part's pretty influential, too. Yeah. yeah. So how did, you, how, how did you jump to Standard after that? And it seems like you started spending more time in the Midwest then, too. Yeah, I definitely did. Um, okay, when Homeless ended, and... It was going to be called, originally it was going to be called Homeless Junior because, you know, we wanted everyone to know that, hey, this is still us. Yeah. Even though Greg was keeping the, the homeless name. Um, and then, you know, they added Taj and they added uh, Taj and Rooftop and um, PC did the mix. We all left and I want to say it was probably like, that end okay, so trash ended so early ninety four 
it was it was just really homeless. Kind of was. I mean, I mean, dude, homeless was really done. We were riding the blim frames that were left over. They had the drop top, you know, the top tube, and that was lower than the seat. The the seat stays, and you know we were doing what we could. Um, and then right around August, yeah, August, the the month before the Hoffman Oklahoma comp, Rooftop came and stayed with me for a month. Me and him had become really good friends after um, the the ninety three. Hoffman comp where he became rooftop. Yeah. And um, we we became, you know, we just talk a lot and stuff. So he's like, hey man, can I come and stay with you, you know, up until the contest? Originally it was like a week, then it ended up being a month. Um, and so he got there and we were talking and he was really starting to blow up. You know, his part in, his part in... Uh, Dirty Deeds had come out and pretty much just rewrote the book of street riding. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, the rooftop train was going. Yeah, no, he was, he, I mean, he definitely was, uh, you know, it, it was just rooftop in the early 90s. He, he, he was the street writer. Yeah, he definitely was. And, you know, me and him are, you know, became, we're talking and he's like, dude, homeless isn't there what was it? It wasn't Homeless Junior. It was Family. Yeah. He's like, Family's just not going to happen. We were like, yeah. We knew it. Me, him, Ed were talking. And Rooftop was like, dude, my dad said he'd give me some money to build some frames and start my own company. And um, so we're talking about it. And he goes, let's do it. And I'm like, Mike, I'm like 19 years old. Like, what? The, what are we thinking? So we just start talking, and it's like, all right, well, what do we do? And Ed was like, well, hey, I know this frame builder. So me and Rooftop start talking, and we go and talk to the frame builder. We find out how much money we, we need to come up with to build these frames. And, and we're like, all right, let's do it. So we built two frames based very loosely around the heaviest fuck frame. And me and Mike were down at my buddy Ian's house, and Ian's dad owned a uh, machine shop. Yeah. But he had, like, a, a small machine shop set up in their garage because his son was, like, one of the best, like, quarter midget racers in the country. And so he had, like, a minor shop to do repairs because his shop was half hour out of town. So... They came back from a race and they needed to make some adjustments. He could do it at the house. And so me and Mike are down there at like 1 o'clock in the morning. And we we had my heaviest fuck frame. And we're standing there with on the tubing bender bending the seat stays and the chain stays. And uh, next day we took him to Jesse, the guy that built the frames. And he's like, alright, it'd be like two weeks. And so... We had bought all the, the material, and he started working on the frames. He finished the frames two days b- before the BS comp. So I took Rooftop, his sample, his prototype. I built mine in the parking lot. And it's the, which BS The comp? halfway house. Oh, oh and uh, 93 
No, 94 uh, BS Comp at uh, Hoffman Park in Oklahoma. So you guys decided to call the company Halfway House. Yep. Couldn't handle being homeless, couldn't start a family, so now we're in a halfway house. Okay. Um, I was running very low on funds at at that contest, so I ended up selling my heaviest fuck to someone um, to to be able to pay for gas home, I guess. And... um, Chefs had already been talking to Rooftop, and I was like, man, do you guys really want to go this route? And he's like, and I've already got Hoffman making some family forks. So he gave me and Rooftop each a set of the, the sample family forks. I'm like, all right, let's see what happens. And so I think we went, me and Mike talked, and we're like, look, we're not going to do the company. But we're giving homeless like a certain amount or family a certain amount of time to actually get going. And if it doesn't, we've got to figure out, we got to figure out something to do. And so family just wasn't taking off. At that point, the forks were made and it was like, dude, it's not going to happen. Yeah. We knew it wasn't going to happen. And I was, you know, I had ridden for Haro with Malaterno. I was really, you know, I had been friends with him in the past, known him really well. And we were, the shop I was working at was ordering, like, standard axles because... That, I mean, that was the shit back then. You guys, that was. You, yeah. You, dude, every, if you ran Super Pros, you needed axles that were stronger than the shitty stock ones. So, we started running standard axles. And so, my, the shop I worked at... Uh, we had, we, we ordered some and one day I was talking to Rick Wagner and he said something he's like, so what's going on with that? I'm like, dude, I don't know. I'm like, I'm riding, I'm riding this frame that me and rooftop built and I can't ride a tire wider than a 175 because the way the, the chain stays are bent. It just, it's, it just sucks. It, It was terrible. Because the bin was too tight, so you couldn't run a fatter tire. And he's like, why don't, why don't you just get a standard? And I'm like, well, what are we talking about? I'm like, dude, I don't... You know, how much can I get one for? He's like, dude, we'll sell you one at what cost to make it. Back in 94, I think it was like 170 bucks. That's what a, I was gonna, That's what exactly what I was thinking in my head. I'm like, I bet you it was like a 170 to build one of those. Yeah, it was something around there. And he goes, what color do you want? And I was like, I want a lengthy, and I wanted that color that um, Chris, the uh, the Flatlander, had. Um, and it was this dark, dark, dark forest green that looked black. Yeah, no, my friend, my friend Eric had one of those. And it was such a dope color. And I was like, I want that. He's like, all right, well, it's going to take about a month to get it. Well, two months later, it was ready. And I was like, all right, well, how much is the total? And I'll send you a check. And Malaterno got on the phone, and he was like, no, you ride for Standard now. Because he, he was already starting to try to take over the whole... Yeah, he was. And, I was and like, Standard had been around for, what, four years then? No, dude, it had only been around for two. Two, okay, but that's Earlier, right. Was the, mean, this was right after the drama with Hoffman at the... Yeah, it was already, yeah, it was kind of already getting squashed at that point. But yeah. You know, they were still kind of, you know, toying with each other a little bit. And that's when a few of the OG standard dudes had already left. And, yep. And then you, there were some dudes coming in to replace them. Yeah, 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 for sure. That was like right or, you know, Joe was, Joe Rich was really blowing up at this point. 
And, you know, they were bringing, they brought Lucky in, and he was going to ride for Ribco, and yeah. all of that stuff. And um, and so I was like, well, wait, what do you mean? And he was like, well, are you, what's going on with, with family? And I'm like, dude, it's not happening. Like, um, I have a set of forks, and that's all I know. I mean, they made a batch of t-shirts. It just, you know, at the time it was like, dude, James's heart just isn't into this anymore. He just wants to ride, and that's it. And he was like, all right. He was like, I'll send you a frame, but you have to agree to ride for standard. I was like, well, I don't have any other options right now. I'm, I'm wanting the frame. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was like Rick was my friend. You know, Rick was a friend from a long time ago. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And so I flew to the contest, uh, Hoffman Finals in 94, and that was my first contest ride for uh, Standard. And, dude, I don't know what happened, man, but I completely blew my runs. Rode, like, complete shit. Didn't make the cut in expert mini ramp. And, uh, I, dude, I was like, Model Turner's just going to straight up kick me off or tell me i got to pay for this frame set. And then, dude, the next year, I think I... No, the next year, I think I ended up getting, like, second in the points run for, for, uh, soon to, or not soon to be, uh... Need to be? Stunt, no, stunt, uh, stunt boy, um, street, and, uh, street and park, and, uh, Joe, I think, won the season for the year, and I think Lucky got third, so I think it was, like, and then... All, yeah, sta- all like, standard All standard dudes, dudes, like, dominated, like, Bobby Fisher run, won for flat, at the finals was that contest that all of us rode to 138 by the Misfits, or we are 138 by the Misfits, and, um, dude, we, it was, Joe won, I got second, Lucky got third, Mel Cody got fourth, maybe? Yeah. And then, I want to say Kenan screwed up our flow, oh no, 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 Sandy got fourth, and then... Kenan had to go and screw it up, and he got fifth, and then Mel Cody got sixth. So if Kenan didn't have to screw it up for us, we would have gotten top top five. And um, and so yeah, and and it was like, dude, that's when Standard was like on fire, dude. It was, um, that was like the team, dude. And then yeah, they were they had been. They had been filming for Style Cats. You know, I'd been on for a couple months, and um, they were like, hey, do you want to film some stuff, you know? Um, props guys are going to put the video together if you can film. And so, yeah, I basically went together, and um, I filmed a little bit, and then went to a Rampage comp during the summer and went and stayed with Marco and Chris Rye, and we filmed a bunch of stuff in, in downtown Chicago and at Scrap and stuff, and that... I mean, literally, dude, my part was pretty much all filmed in one day back then. Yeah. Um, they didn't even really use any of the stuff that I filmed in my house on my mini ramp or anything. And, um, yeah, and that's how Style Cats ended up happening. Um, and then were you in any other standard videos after that? No. Okay. No. And then you rode for standard for, what, two years? Rode for standard through... May of 98, and I went to 
Tampa State Pete contest, I think is what it was. Uh, BS Comp. Rode pretty well. Um, that comp, I think, was like the comp that, you know, me and Sandy had decided we were leaving. Um, or we were going to leave. Uh, Rick had given lucky money for a hotel for all yeah. of us. Rick had already prepaid our entry fees. Uh, he paid our flights, all of that. And he gave lucky money for for food for all of us, I think, and a hotel room. And Lucky basically ended up getting one room with one bed, and his girlfriend came. Oh, shit. So it was like, okay, so me and Sandy basically ended up staying with the props guys on, on Hank Williams' tour bus. That was like the first comp they brought it to. Yeah. And we ended up sleeping on that thing the whole weekend. And... Um, I got back, and I, and I was getting ready to move to San Diego, and um, I was like, shit, dude, I, I'm, I'm over it. Like, you know, I, I called Rick, and I was like, dude, what's going on? You know, you gave this dude money, and he completely dicked us over. Like, blew us off, didn't tell us where the hotel was, got a room, but only for him and his girlfriend, and didn't give us any money. We were both, you know, hell, dude. We didn't have any money anyway, and so it was like, it sucked. And he was like, no, dude, he was supposed to... Well, he didn't. And, yeah, it, it that was kind of like, okay, well, I've got to find another option. And a week before I was moving to San Diego, Woody Itzen called me and at GT and said, hey, you know, um, I understand that... You're riding Vert really, really well right now. And, you know, Kip um, Williamson is like, dude, get you on the team. And he's like, what is it going to take to get you on GT? What's it going to take to get you on a GT bump right now? (laughs) The funny thing was, dude, is, yeah, exactly. But (laughs) it was really supposed to be the fueler. But the fueler is updated, updated fueler. And... I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, well, how about this? I'll fly you out here next week. We'll sit down and go over stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm moving to San Diego next week. So how about like the week after that, I come up and hang out with you and we'll sit down and see what we can do. And I get out, I get out to California and, uh, my friend Chris drove me up there. He drove me up to, um, to orange to go to, to GT and, um, I sat down with Woody and with Woody, and I walk in. Uh, you know, I get there, and you know, I, I walked in, and we walk through this this room, and he's like, "Oh, I got to show you this," and he shows me a prototype fueler, and he's like, "Yeah, we kind of figured that maybe we could use this to lure you over," and I'm like, "What do you mean?" And he was like, "Well." You know, we understand kind of the bike you're riding is an STA, and we're kind of trying to figure out a way to make something along the lines that will cater to people like you. Okay. And I looked at the frame, and I was like, dude, it doesn't look too bad, you know? The time when they're building, you know, they're making these freestyle frames that have a bent top tube, and we're all like, dude, it looks like a girl's bike. You know, Oh, yeah, the, the swooped them. ones that Volker, poor Volker had to ride. Yeah, the thing looked so just stupid 
and and just so retarded. I mean, it just it looked awful. Like I, I would have been embarrassed to ride that piece of crap. Volker and Nolly in, in their prime haven't ride those. Bestuk rode one too. Oh, Bestuk did ride one. Yeah, but you know, every one of those dudes' frames was custom to their specs. It wasn't they were riding, you know, the stock thing. Um, and so I sat there and, you know, we, we talked about some, some stuff and potential. And it, it, at that point I was like, you know, I want to ride, but at the same time I kind of want to do a little bit of product development too, because I knew what was, I knew what a lot of people that I rode with were into. And I felt that I could maybe help contribute making was, their bikes a little bit better. Was your BMX nerd starting to come out of you then? Oh, dude, my BMX nerd has been alive <laughs> full, fully since day one. You, you'd finally, it yeah, finally came out. I was embracing it. And and so I was like, all right. I go, you know what? They gave me a written offer. And I said, give me a couple of days. I said, I need to call Rick and see what we can do. And I called Rick. And I said, look, I have an offer, and I don't know what to do. I'm like, because I've got the loyalty thing, because you and I have been friends for such a long period of time. But at the same time, I want to go to contests. You know, I'm, you know, I'm getting you coverage. I, you know, I'm, all this stuff. And, you know, we really discussed it, and he gave me his blessing, and he's like, look, dude, he's like, I can't do what they're doing it's that simple and it's like okay and he goes so what are you gonna do and i'm like i don't want you to think i'm a dick for saying this but i'm gonna take the offer i go because you know there's an opportunity of potential future with this as well outside of if i don't ride any longer yeah you know or if i quit competing i quit riding at a competitive level shall i say and I called Woody after I hung up with Rick and I said, okay, I want to do the deal. And so we arranged for me to go back up there. I want to say like the next day, sign my contract. And was Woody chill? Cause you know, you always hear stories about Woody where some people love Woody and some people feel like Woody's hustling everybody. I don't, I don't, I don't, dude, I, I will say dude, he definitely was a great negotiator cause he got me for less than he probably should have. But um, you know, whatever. I mean, that's his job. He's got to try to keep, you know, the budget good. Yeah. Um, and, and whatever, you know, I didn't really, like I said, dude, I don't, the money wasn't the thing. I wanted to go to contests. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, the, the, the vert ramps at the contests were just starting to suck. Yeah, they were wide, but I'm like, dude, I like riding skate ramps. I like a foot nine of vert. I don't like this six inches of vert on an 11 foot vert ramp. It just feels stupid. It feels pointless. And I'd go to the contest and, you know, part of the thing was too is I was going to ride that frame and I was going to help make it the way it should have been. Yeah. And I did a bunch of drawings saying, look, bottom bracket's too high, standover's a little too low, you know, little things. Dude. It wasn't major tweaks. It was stuff that Billy Griggs could have gone and fired up the social distortion cassette in the back room and, you know, welded it up with no problem, probably 45 minutes, and we'd have been good. But they wouldn't listen. And, um, dude, I ended up getting frames, and I would 
grind the dropouts forward the slots so my back wheel would be slammed more. And dude, I ended up doing the same thing with my with my uh, 990s where I would grind it out so that my brake pads could slide forward so I would have a shorter back end. Yeah. And they were like, oh, well, it's Taiwan's regulations, blah, blah, blah. And I think the first bike lasted me about six months. And, you know, that was the hump and bump, the bright blue thing. And, dude, it wasn't a bad bike, but the back end was just way long. And the bottom bracket was, dude, it was stupid high. I mean, it was something like, dude, the bottom bracket was, honest to God, like 12 inch. Yeah. And it made no sense. Um, And so, I was like, dude, you need to lower this to like 11 and a half, 11 six. Shorten the back end. Because I think at that time, probably 14 and a quarter back ends were good. Um, and they were coming down from, like, 15s and stuff. Yeah, and I wanted it, like, slammed at 14. Dude, slammed on that frame was, like, 15 and an 8th or something. Yeah. And so, I, you know, that's why I was grinding it down. And so, you know, they did that. Then they made the fueler, you know, and I got a fueler. The day I got it, I sheared a 990 mount off the frame. Billy Call Griggs the, wasn't doing his job right. Yeah, that's why he welds Razor scooters now. But, um, <laughs> I don't know, dude. I don't know if he built it or, you know, some dude in the machine shop. Somebody built it and, oops, and it sucked. Um, I called Robert because Woody was on vacation. And I was like, I broke my frame. What do you mean you broke your frame? You just got it yesterday. I'm like, dude, brake mount broke off. And he was pissed. And he was like, well, we don't have any. I was like, all right, then I don't ride. We're paying you to ride. Okay, well, I don't have a bike with brakes, so I'm not riding. So he overnighted me another bump, or another fueler. And it was right around the time of my birthday. And so my buddy Art, for my birthday, got this crazy paint job done for me. And I know GT wouldn't have wanted that, but I didn't want to ride a burgundy bike. It was just gross. And he got this that Mustang Mystic color, the, the the Cobra Mystic color, which was like a green and in a light it's purple and another light it's blue. Dude, it was like three hundred bucks for the paint. Yeah, but you know, this dude, you know, he uh, he was in the street pharmaceutical business, so he you know he traded some stuff and got me a rad paint job, and you know I just rode vert with a dude. That's all we ever did. Yeah, and. Um, Got me the bike. I put it together on my birthday. Did a blunt 180 on the sub box at the skate park and sheared a 990 mount off. Called Robert the following day and was like, dude, my buddy just got a $300 paint job put on my bike and I just sheared the 990 mount off the frame. So somebody's not even like getting a deep enough weld on these things or something. Dude, well, one thing we were thinking about is maybe they were welding them too slow and it was making the weld just way too brittle. Who knows? Yeah. Um, because it was such a tiny back end. Uh, it was so low because the standover height on that frame, the way... The I remember those frames, were, they were low. It was like six and a <clears throat> half or seven maybe. And that, I don't know. That, that may have been it. Who knows? But kept breaking them. And uh, he sent me a hump and bump and I rode that. And then the back end was twisted, and he finally, they gave me another one. And then that was, like, June of 
June of 99, and around that time, I was like, this just isn't my thing. I, I wasn't happy. I hated the bike. Um, I hated wearing NASCAR jerseys. I just wasn't into, into it. I, I wanted out of my contract. I started doing stupid shit so I'd get kicked off, but they wouldn't kick me off. Um, right around that time, the new uh, Lengthy came out, and um, I called Rick. I was like, hey, dude, look, I'm not happy. Just tell me how much. I want to buy a frame. And all I wanted to do was go ride street. I didn't want to ride vert. I didn't want to do anything. I was just, as a lot of people that have ridden for GT have, I had GT burnout. Didn't want to do anything. I wanted nothing to do with the bike or the company. And so Rick actually just said, no, I'll send you a bike. And since I was on Little Devil at the time, we were co-sponsored by Profile. So I talked to Jeff Harrington. He sent me a box of Profile stuff. So I built a complete brand new bike. My GT stayed in the box until I did a show. To pull the bike out, do the show for the weekend, put it back in the box, and it would sit in the box until I did another set of shows. I started riding a standard like three quarters of the way, no, probably halfway through the year in uh, 99. And then I ended up kind of back on standard a little bit um, up until... 2000 and, uh, 2001 when I broke my back and it was like, okay, you've kind of got to walk away for a while. So maybe we'll hit some questions here in a sec, but really quick, let's, let's let everybody know how you broke your back because you told me and I don't think very many people know you broke your back and how, what a weird situation it was. Oh, it's definitely a weird situation. Um, I was in my junior year of college and was doing an internship, uh, business internship for a hospital here, the irony of that, and um, was designated, uh, had designated parking in a parking garage across the street from said internship, and was going about my business and uh, parked my car on the 8th floor, got into an elevator, and something happened with the elevator, and it dropped 8 floors. So, what were you thinking? Like, I mean, that's like everybody's worst nightmare in an elevator. I mean, you get an elevator, you're like, oh, it's going to do this. But you got in that, did it did it start going down normal and just drop, or did you yeah, hit the start, button? it started going normal, uh, probably about half a floor, and then just dropped. Caught it about 4th floor, 5th floor, somewhere in there. And, um, it, I mean, it literally caught for a brief second and then just dropped. Do you think if it wouldn't have caught, you might have died? Oh, I would have definitely died, you know? And, and the thing was, is at the time, I was in really good shape. And, you know, like, my back, my back doctor, he's just like, dude, if you wouldn't have been in the condition you were in, you would have died. It's that simple. Or you would have been paralyzed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it was a very bizarre situation. Um... You know, one, how, it was at a how, hospital. How long did, did it take for you to be able to even ride after that? Dude, I think I snuck my bike out for the first time in, like, March of 03. But that was kind of the end of your pro Oh, riding. I was kind of, yeah, I was kind of, 
you know, I was kind of fading out anyway, and I was just, you know, I, I it wasn't about being a pro rider anymore. It was just about riding my bike and having fun. Yeah. Um, you know, I was in, I was going to college and, you know, I was working and you know I was enjoying that, but I was enjoying. I was loving riding my bike again versus being forced to ride my bike. Yeah. And I was happy. I was very content. And then that happened um, November of 01. And, yeah, I didn't touch my bike until probably March of 03, uh, March or April. And, I mean, I I wasn't supposed to be riding um, because we were knee-deep in all the legal legal crap with it. And... um, yeah, I would basically dress weird. I would leave my house with my bike in, like, I'd back out of my garage with my bike already loaded. And I'd drive kind of erratically, so if anyone was following me, because, you know, they they have to. They've got to hire private investigators to make sure you're not faking. But it's kind of like, dude, I wasn't faking. I fell, what is it, 72 feet in an elevator. Yeah. But... You know, they still, hey, they don't want to pay you. They don't have to. So they're going to find a way to get out of it. And so, yeah, I did what I could. And I would ride maybe once every couple of weeks. Nothing serious, but I would play around a little bit. And well, it's just nice to be back on your bike and just pedal. That was my sanity, dude. I mean, you know, considering that I'd been riding since, technically riding a bicycle since I was two. You know, it was. It was my sanity. You know, I didn't have... I didn't have a way to vent frustration, anything like that. And as, as, as much as people don't realize it, you know, dude, our, especially for a lot of us, dude, our bikes are very detrimental in the way that our lives are and how they've evolved because without them, dude, we wouldn't, one, we wouldn't be who we are, but two, it's like, dude, they've helped us through so much lame shit. Yeah. You know, breakups, arguments with people. Um, money problems, anything, everything, yeah. Anything, dude. Any any kind of problem, dude. No matter what, dude. If you hop on your bike, you can be having the worst day ever. But you can ride your bike and you're stoked. Even if you have a shitty day riding, it's like, dude, I still rode my bike today. Yeah. And, and that's kind of what happened. Um, you know, I was forced to walk away up until... When was it final? Uh, it was finalized in, like, June of 04. I mean, it was four years of dealing with that crap. Um, and it sucked. It, it definitely sucked. It was a learning experience. And learn a lot of things about yourself. You learn a lot of things about people that you're friends and family with. Um, but, you know, I guess it's part of life. You know, I as much as it sucked, I definitely learned a lot about myself during that period. So... You just got to hope it's, you know, hope for the best and hope you learn something from it and, you know, that it'll all work out eventually. Okay. You want to go through some of these questions? Let's do it. All right. We're going to hit these Instagram questions. Somebody asked about why you rode a GT bump. We already covered that. (laughs) Uh, Unseen History wants to know what older BMX brand would you revive if you could? Maybe like you just like the feel of that brand, or you just like the way it was like. You you, you know we we know where this is going. What what brand you could bring it back and just be like, or you know you think it'd just be con- continuous and never went out of business. What one do you think it would be? 
Dude, I, I know that I'm probably on the same page with you and I know the uh, several other people, but I'd say Anarchic Adjustment. You know, that, Oh, we're going with the clothing brand, not a bike brand. <laughs> dude, no reason to bring a bike brand. Dude, there's plenty of those now. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you know, a lot of them are, are doing their jobs, you know, really well now, so it's... Uh, so yeah, Anarchic Adjustment. Anarchic, dude. You know, look at, look at how influential it was. You know, it was... A cut and paste company that was so brilliant. Yeah, you know, dude. No one up until that point wanted stuff. You know, no, dude. I never gave a crap about what I wore, but the second I saw a T-shirt with that Anarchy logo on, I was like, hell yes. Subliminal message. Oh, dude, that's good. You, you can't even screw with that. That stuff was just so cutting edge. But at the same time, it was rad because if you saw somebody with that, you identified with that person. You know that person rode or skated, hands down. Yeah. So without a doubt, yeah, I would say anarchic. I mean, dude, why? You know, I don't, I don't, dude. I wouldn't want to revive a bike brand. I mean, dude, look at it. You know, Haro has a Sport Master coming out. Sabros has a Slayer bike coming out. You know, what more would I need, dude? Okay. You know, those are, those are one, favorite band ever, and two, like, my favorite, the bike that I built my life off of yeah. is modernized that I can ride now. So here's one. We got a lot of these. You probably know which one I'm going to say. <laughs> we'll just do sick mats. Why haven't you and the rest of the homeless gang kick Perrick's ass into doing a box set? I, I mean, this question comes up yearly. Dude, like, it, dude it, it comes off. It comes up so often, and, and and I mean, dude, literally. I mean, honestly, we all question it. I, I mean, I, I probably don't want to to make this worse on Perrick, but dude, I talk to Perrick probably four times a week, five times a week. Um, dude, I think the easiest way to say is. We're all a lot older. We all have priorities. Um, I don't necessarily feel that it's the biggest of priorities for Perrick. Because he's, dude, he's got to, he's got to, he's got to support himself. Um, granted, yes, it is brought up a lot more often than not. Um, it has been discussed. I mean, dude, we had a discussion about it yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um... I think it's one of those things where if everyone is patient with it, it will eventually happen. But I feel that the way that it is with Dave, Dave wants it on his own terms. He doesn't want it on everyone demanding it. He wants to do it and it just be, it just show up and everyone be like, whoa, it's really been worked on. I will say that I probably have three minutes of straight footage that we could make a video part out of that he and I have filmed over the past decade. Um, I know there's a handful of interviews that have already been done. Whether that surfaces in the next two years, that's up to date. Um, but it does get discussed quite often. So I feel everyone has a better chance of seeing it than they realize, but it may be a little bit longer than everyone would like to wait. But, okay. 
Um, I, I definitely see it being one of those things that will happen. Um, it, I, it, it's an, I think it's inevitable that it will eventually happen, but it is on Dave's own terms. It's not, it's not us deciding. It's not for us to decide. That is Dave's brainchild. That is brain, Dave's baby. He's going to do it when he feels ready to do it. Okay. Um, let's see. Scroll through some of these. The TJ Henderson. TJ Henderson. He goes, what's some of your favorite fakie tricks? Who inspired you to do fakie moves? What was it like being in standard style cats? And how did being on standard at the time influence the way you rode? So I think we covered a little bit of the standard stuff, but... Yeah. I yeah. Mean, dude, what, what were your favorite fakie tricks? I mean, one, dude, it's TJ asking this. I mean, dude, he's, he's probably my, without a doubt, my favorite modern day, you know, front brake kid for sure. Um, but it, it's one of those things where, huh, how do I begin it? Um, without a doubt, my f- favorite fakie trick is so, so hard to say. Um, probably like, I mean, if we're if we're going too fakey from fakey, or wait, from fakey to fakey, sorry, probably be like fakey to toothpick to fakey, or like, dude, fakey three sixty nose picks were really fun, and um, dude, I mean, even like fakey to fakey, you know, uh, opposite ice pick grind to fakey was really rad. Um, the one that he and I have discussed that I promised him I would do, but so far I suck and I haven't filmed it for him, which is cab to ice pick to fakie. Um, did a handful of those back in the day. Um, definitely one of those things that I would love to do again, but it was just such... Dude, I think I spent two nights in a row just working on that all night to do it. Um person that influenced me to ride, to do a lot of fakie stuff. One, I, I mean, I already did a lot of fakie stuff on vert. Just fakie airs are so much fun. But I think the person that really pushed me to, to start actually running a free coaster and really try to see where I could push my fakie riding was Eddie Roman. The one person that you and I have already talked about it today. But it's like, he's the one dude that does not get credit for it. Um, summer of 88... At the the Austin Tube Comp, I watched Eddie fakie hop off like a four foot tall ledge. Watch him half cab off a full four foot tall ledge. No one was doing that. I mean, dude, he was running a coaster a break on top of it, and it it is one of those things where it was just, dude. I think it was kind of the national progression of one seeing that being possible. And at the same time, you know, like I've said, plenty today of riding with skaters. I think, you know, riding backwards was just the natural progression of pushing BMX forward. Um, you know, so many kids do fakie tricks now. Um, and, and it is. It's so much fun. But it's such a challenge because it's, you know, I, I think I will definitely steal Kurt's statement or Kurt's comment on it of it's not riding forward. So it's, you know, it, it's definitely something that I wanted to push and, you know, see where I could really go with it. Um, but I mean, there are, there's so many dudes that, that put, that are, that are pushing it now. You know, you've, you've got, you know, you've got TJ, you've got Bobby, you've got, 
Um, you've got Patty. You've got all these dudes doing these, you know, Rob Ridge, dude. You've got these dudes that are just still pushing it on a level that, you know, you see stuff and you're like, you know, and, and I will say this, the dudes that I see doing this stuff, it makes me so stoked because they're doing some of the stuff and dialing in some of the stuff that, you know, I would try maybe back then and didn't do, or maybe I did it once or twice and never did it again. And it's rad. It's seeing that that progression has continued and there's dudes that still are stoked to do fakie tricks, you know, especially mini ramp. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, that's, that's my one thing that I love riding is mini ramp probably more than anything. So seeing that is rad. Um, wow. Favorite standard rider. Is that what it was? I think that's in there too. Huh. Um, wow. Dude, there was, I mean, who, dude, honestly, Frymouth. That's a good a one. Doubt. That's a good dude, one. Dude, Frymouth killed it. I mean, I remember first time I saw Bako 5, dude. Um, I, I mean, I'd seen Bako 4 and I really didn't pay that much of attention. Bako 5 was an eye-opener. It was like, who's the dude with the ponytail on the white bike that fucking kills it? Yeah. And honestly, dude, I don't know if BMX was ready for Frymouth at that point because he was a mix of tech and burly that people had yet to see. And yeah, it was just, dude, without a doubt, it would be Frymouth. I, I, I don't think there's any other any other person other than Frymouth. All right, perfect. Um, let me scroll through. Uh, Ryan Corrigan wants to know, who was the craziest member of the Homeless Trash Crew? Now, this could be craziest person or maybe the craziest riding. I'm going to go with craziest of riding because I, I think that would... Craziest of human beings. Could it might be hard to pick. A can the, of worms. And, and that whole crew seemed pretty crazy. Everyone was kind of... Dude, we're all kind of batshit crazy at the same time. But, um... Goop. I mean, there's not a... So Kevin Gutierrez. Hell yes, dude. Absolutely. It's, it's Kevin Gutierrez. Um, there is not a person that I've ever seen ride a bike that did not give a shit what he got out of it more than Kevin. But the stuff that Kevin did still to this day makes no sense. Um, Kevin, and and I mean, dude, I know I'm not the only one that will say this, Kevin was not the most graceful of riders, but yet could make a trick happen. He wasn't one of the dudes that would manual and then foot plant 180 out of it because his front wheel was dropping down. If his front wheel was dropping down, he was going to go into some decade rock walk boomerang thing to nose pick to 27 hop back wheel hops to decade to something. He figured out a way... Goop figured out a way to make the easiest tricks the most complicated tricks. Yeah. Um, dude. Riding down a handrail. No one did that in 1992. He rode across a single coping spine like it was a joke. 
Blunt no-handers, or Abubica no-handers. Um, he did, like, a gap to rail on Homeless Trash. He did gap to rail. He did gap to... He did handrail look down. He feebled the red rail. Dude, I would... I think everyone would way much have rather 50-50 the red rail than feebled that thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, dude, he, he's one of the people that I've probably known the most at... The longest out of BMX, and... I don't think there's ever been a time that Kevin didn't amaze me with how he pulled something out of his ass with the greatest of ease. I mean, you look at it and it's like, dude, I, I mean, I saw him go on tour for GT before I was on GT and he would sketch something out in the middle of a show and turn it into something so ridiculous and so hard that... You couldn't comprehend how the hell he did it. And the thing was, he get done, he'd just laugh. It was like, whatever. And it's like, how, dude? How? He was... I think think Kevin, honestly, is one of the most gifted BMX riders ever. Because he knows how to... He knows how to turn something into nothing. Or nothing into something, I'm sorry. But he knows how to... I mean, if something's going down, he's going to find a way to turn it into something. Yeah. Something awesome. Something that everyone that is in a crowd or whoever's on the deck, whatever, is going to be like, that was insane. And still to this day, dude. I mean, when he does ride, dude, when he rode a toast a couple years, didn't he do like 360 blunt? I don't think he'd probably done a rollback in probably a decade. No, he did a rock walk drop in. He did a rock walk drop in, which is... And I th- didn't he do a Miami Hopper drop in? No, he didn't do that. Who didn't somebody do that? I don't know. I think somebody. Tried yeah. It, anyway. Who knows? But okay. Yeah, hands down, goo, dude. Without a doubt, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. Brad forty one thirty. I mean, this. I don't know if you even be able to count this number. How many bikes have you had total, totaling in your BMX career? And then, what bike was your favorite? We got a couple more after this, so wow, let's dude. not. Um, this one we could spend a thousand. A thousand years on. I mean, dude, we we've already covered nineteen eighty eight at eighteen frames. Um, I mean, dude, throughout that, I mean, dude, honestly, it's it's had to be in the hundreds. I mean, without a doubt. Okay. I mean, um, I think when I rode for homeless, I had like five frames alone, and I mean that wasn't bad back then. Um, but yeah, the Harrow period, the Wilkerson period, bully alone was you know. Four-month period on bullying, I had four bikes. Um, so it was definitely a lot. Hey, Wilkerson's batting 100. You only rode one, bro. <sighs> that geometry is... It's perfect. No. It's perfect. Anyway, I, next I question. <laughs> but favorite bike, dude. I mean, that that's such a difficult question because, dude, I'm such a BMX nerd in a sense where it's like there's so many bikes that I love to just stare at. Dude, 90 Sport. I mean, that thing changed Haro from a straight down tube company to a GT down tube company. And, I mean, you look at the Airmaster. That, I mean, dude, I look at that frame and I'm like, that thing is sick. And you keep talking about the Airmaster, so we might think the Airmaster is I, your... I would probably say the Airmaster is definitely up there. I mean, dude, the Bully was awesome, though. The Bully's... Yeah. Like, the Bullies were the 
one of the best looking frames with the biggest piles of shit ever. Because Taiwan fucked RL. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sure there's more into it. But, but, I mean, dude, those frames. I mean, dude, Haro Freestyler. I mean, that was the first bike. That was the bike that got me stoked on freestyle. Um, Dude, honestly, I will say this. I, I think I can honestly say, though, favorite bike ever, even though how much I love all those other bikes, 87 or 88 Haro Sport. Um, my black turquoise and chrome 87 team sport was, I loved that bike. Dude, you know what? Screw it. 88 black, blue, chrome sport. All right. With half chrome, half black, knee savers, and super pros. That was my favorite bike because that bike just looks sick. All right. Casey Smithsonian. How do you explain your longevity in BMX and your extensive knowledge? And do you have any future plans in, for involvement in the BMX industry? Wow. Um, longevity. Uh, I, I think the longevity is basically stupidity because my my body is a complete and total wreck. Um, but I still ride. You know, um, it's what keeps me young. I think my wife even will tell you that. Without my bike, I would probably be a miser- even a more miserable and grumpy, salty individual than I already am, um, but yeah, um, it's just one of those things where it's just, you know, trying to take as good a care of my body as I can, um, which is kind of hard doing this, but just going and and enjoying it, you know, and staying positive with all of that and knowing that, you know, I have limits. I do, I know that I cannot go right now and recreate my section in, you know, uh, nowhere fast. I know it's not possible. I know that I'm 42 years old. I'm not capable of doing what I was doing 20, when I was 24 and I was riding my bike every day. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's that's a lot of what it is right now. It's like, dude, I know that I have limits and I'm not willing to, to push them beyond that. Um, okay, there was longevity. And do you have any plans? Doing... Well, I know that. And that was, I know the plans when, what was the other part that, of it? That was it. Uh, was it? Do you have any plans for future involvement in the BMX industry? Um, technically, I kind of already do. Um, a lot of people don't really realize this, but there's a lot of stuff that I do behind the scenes with uh, with Ronnie Bonner and everyone at Shadow and Sparkies and Sabrosa and whatnot. Um, most of my involvement is really with Shadow. Uh, there was some a brief period of some product development working on free coasters with Byron and GL, um, but now it's basically a lot of times when Shadow sponsors an event, uh, they want to build ramps, or something for an event, um, I'm one of the people that, you know, I basically, Ronnie gives me an idea, and I figure it out, hey, we, you know, it's like, hey, we want to do this, what, how do we go about it, you know, and I'll do the drawings and figure it all out. Uh, Sparky's parking lot comps. I've done all of those. Um, the past like five years, I think I've designed the courses. Um, Shadow Coffin, me and my buddy Jake designed it. And who would have ever thought a coffin shaped grind box would create such craziness? Um, I I mean, it's, I, I think probably in my opinion, it's probably one of the most gratifying things I've ever gotten out of BMX because it's like, 
dude, we drew up the plans and there's tons of these things across the world. And it started out as a joke. We never knew that people would be that stoked on a grind box. So yeah, it's kind of that. And, you know, just trying to help those brands stay going, you know, um, I've done a little bit of stuff with Haro with, you know, um, assisting with some of the history projects and, um, helping them do some stuff when they did Texas toast, uh, sponsor Texas toast, helping them create their events and, and, and such. Um, being involved in the, the industry full time, I, I highly doubt that will, would happen. Um, but you know, there, there are the brands that I do have my loyalty to that I will, you know, that I have, I I've helped and I will continue to help them because you know, they support me. I'm going to support them. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's anything I can do to, to help continue to, to keep BMX alive and pushing it forward. I'm going to do it. Um, as long as it's not a, a severe conflict of interest. Yeah, definitely. All so. right. Last question. Tom at Empire wants to know, which I this I don't even know what this means. Troy Tiro or Bo Cobb? Is it Bo Cobb or it's Bo Cobb and Troy Tiro? Okay. Um, shit, dude. I don't know. I mean, who are I, is these baseball players? No, dude. These are actual dudes I competed against in AFA. Oh, okay. I thought I, Bo, I, I thought Bo Cobb was a baseball player. <laughs> I was like, what is he asking? I don't know much about baseball, but I can tell you it's Ty Cobb. Oh, it's Ty Cobb, son of a oh. bitch. But, dude, that's so hard to say because... Um, so these dudes that used to compete against I you? I compete against both of them, yeah. Um, Bo was was from Beeville and rode with, with Todd and Eric Evans and ended up being sponsored by RevCore. And Troy was from Houston, had a... Well, they both had pretty bitchin' mullets for a period of time, and um, hung out with this dude, Eddie Cooper, who had a couple f- uh, photos in freestyling back in the day, and drove a primer gray Chevy Love mini truck that was lowered, and pretty sure all he listened to was Metallica, yeah, uh, not, Master of Puppets. Nothing wrong it. with that. No, there's nothing wrong with that, but yeah, dude was completely out of his freaking mind. Um, but he did really good Randy Tishman style pretzel errors. Um, if we're going to go competing wise, I, I would probably say that Bo and I probably had the most battles because I think I competed against Bo a little bit more than I did Troy. Um, both really, really good riders, but it's, I don't, I don't know how to answer if, if, if it's, who's, Who's a better competitor? Who is harder to try to beat? I don't know. I mean, they're both really good dudes. Um, they're both really. I mean, they're both rad. I mean, they both went you know eight, nine feet. You know, did a lot of variations and stuff. Um, I mean, but at the same time, they were both a little bit older than me, so I didn't compete against them that much. Um, I mean, if, if, if Tom really wants to break it out, we can definitely go like the Jarrett Ganschow route and say the, the ultimate like trend bike source pro Uh, I don't know. Um, if we're going to say who's better, I don't really think I can, I don't think I can honestly give you an assessment. All right. They're both rad. They're both rad. I mean, 
You and Tom are gonna have to squabble that one out. That's all right. We'll fight to death. All right. He, except he has guns. I don't have any of those. But yeah, I mean, both those dudes were rad, and um, I'd love to, you know, see both of them on the the ver- uh, the the platform of a uh, six foot bull, since that's all we seem to have here in San Antonio anymore uh, to session with. So be rad. Um, but yeah, I, I I don't I don't know how to answer Tom's question other than they were both awesome riders and um, two dudes from Texas that probably definitely didn't get half the half the credit or uh, notoriety they deserved. All right. Well, that's all I take the questions. Okay. Um, I think we're done. That's a wrap. Sweet. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, if you're not already following Snakebite BMX or Dig BMX on all your social platforms, including YouTube, uh, do yourself a favor and go give us a follow, a like, uh, subscribe, do all those things. Um, it really helps us out. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and until next time.